Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And we're also joined by our friend and my colleague, Waypoint Editor-in-Chief, Austin Walker. Austin, welcome back to Idle Weekend. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. We're going to have a lot of fun today. And this weekend, we are talking about deconstruction and games that embrace, <laughs> for better or worse, a meta-awareness of their gaminess. They and didn't Rob, tell me this. They, oh, no one told me that oh, this is what we, the topic was. You know, we knew you were coming on. and so You just we picked went, one that's great. We want yeah. to do something special that you might like. And uh, Rob, I know you've been, you've been thinking about this a lot. Uh, so maybe you can set the stage a little bit. Uh, you're talking about like spec ops style meta text about agency and player choice or like demakes or are you being a little more literal? Uh, so I'm not I'm not all that high minded. So I'm I'm actually being pretty <laughs> literal here, uh, okay. but I suspect this conversation is is going to broaden to become kind of all encompassing as our chats usually do, uh, and yeah. we probably won't even stick to a workable definition of deconstruction for for more than a few minutes here. Uh, but so for the past week, I've been playing uh, Titanfall two and Dishonored two again, mm. and one thing that really struck me while I'm playing Titanfall two, like yesterday I was playing through this level. Uh, that that sort of put put me in mind of this topic. Both of these games end up playing around with level construction and sort of the artifice of the environment of play. Hmm. And in Titanfall Two, there's this mission. Uh, there's this there's this sequence where you're on an assembly line for like prefabricated buildings, and you have to ride these platforms while the mm -hmm. buildings are sort of assembled around you. Um, and it's all it's all really cool. Like at first you're on sort of these inscrutable platforms and you see like, you know, caution warning signs and everything and you don't know what it's for. And then suddenly like machines start plunking down uh, like home shit, home furnishings all around you. But of course, what it's also doing is dropping like recognizable game assets into the environment. <laughs> like yeah. what's being built around you is fractions of Titanfall levels. Um, including some stuff that's very reminiscent of like environments you saw a lot of in Titanfall 1. And it sort of culminates with this massive showdown on top of this like the, the top of this facility, this like giant roof, where basically you are thrown into a, a like free-for-all deathmatch. Uh, against yep. against the IMC. And you know it's this entire level that plays around with like constructing a shooter level. Um, and it's, the, it's, it's like that moment, Rob, where you reach the, the top and you go, oh, uh-huh, uh I see what you did. Like you made a little battle arena slash slash a little nuke town, right? Like there's almost yeah. a sort of self-referential, like this is the team that, that built the original uh, Modern Warfare games and brought people that level uh, I believe it was a Modern Warfare level that wasn't a, a Black yeah. Ops. I think that was a Black Ops level. I don't, but but it's almost like that exact sort of like modular house like built from the ground up. Uh, and that moment is just like feels like a great joke. Uh, and then also it's fun to play in it. So like good work. Yeah. And it's it, it's <laughs> cool being at the top of this facility and seeing the level like sort of rise out of nothing and, and, and take shape around you. And it really put me in mind of another level in Dishonored 2, uh, the Clockwork Mansion, which I think Danielle oh, yeah. and I have talked about. But it's this level where, um, you know, Kieran Jindosh, this uh, brilliant sadist uh, in, in Dishonored 2, has sort of built this... Um, 
this this home that can reshape and reconstruct itself uh via these like huge mechanisms and the the house does follow a logic like it's not just wizarding stuff in and out of existence like everything mm-hmm. goes somewhere everything has to sort of unfold and unfurl in a way that is reasonably uh re- reasonably practical and so i guess like what sort of struck me here is like i just find it interesting that in 2016 you had shooters now really starting to embrace this uh, the the artifice of of video games and not in that meta text sense because I, I feel like a mm-hmm. few years ago meta text was all the rage right it was all about yeah. like you know oh man what what does agency mean in a video game like totally. since it's on rails it's this authored experience like who are you and now there's kind of this just embrace of games don't have to follow any rules of like recognizable reality at all you can they're they're all like these constructed environments let's play with that and let's right, it's like craft and, yeah. and that means once you're free from you know this is ironic i think coming from me who i think has a reputation of being academic and high-minded or whatever but once you recognize that you're not trying to be quote-unquote high art you are free to play around with with convention in a way that you, you might not be able to unless you're super acclaimed high art, and in which case you can then also justify it, right? But like this is, I kind of mentioned this on the most recent episode of Waypoint Radio when talking about um, Get Out as being a Bloomhouse film, uh, yeah. which, which plays with horror convention, but also throws a lot of it out the window and addresses things directly in a way that I suspect a larger budget picture from a more traditional house would not be able to do. Um, because it's like a schlocky horror film or because it's being made by a schlocky horror film company or, or produced by one, um, you know, uh, uh, Jordan, Jordan, I'm sorry. I always get, I always get their names. Jordan, Jordan, Jordan Peele. Peel. That's JP. correct. I got it. I got yeah, it. You got uh, it. Jordan Peele, um, was able to like mess around with the structure and the, and, and kind of change the the pacing, uh, and also just include content that is often subtext as text. Uh, and that's really that's really good. I like I like this trend in in media if it is a trend. Yeah, I'm I'm just on such a like get out trip that I. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Please, Rob, everyone have you go seen see it? Uh, no, no, I haven't. Okay. Uh, it's okay. definitely like near near the top of my list. Because um, yeah. I mean, after Evan after Evan's recommendation last week as well, mm-hmm. uh, I do feel kind of obligated to see it before it is inevitably spoiled uh, as to. How that entire thing unfolds. That is that Please is one film I, I don't want to know the plot beats. In a clockwork I... mansion like manner. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yep. But yeah, I I keep finding myself on a podcast with Austin and one other person who hasn't seen Get Out. This keeps happening. Uh, one day it'll be. One, one day we'll have a third. We're gonna person have a Get Out cast one day. Um, uh, you'll be going played... back. Go oh, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead, Austin. Uh, uh, just going back to your earlier point, Rob. The thing that's interesting about that level, the Titanfall level that I, I've already forgotten the name of, um, is also that, it, it, to your point, it's a it's a level about building a level, and you can almost imagine all of those assets as gray box assets, right? Yeah. Like, okay, this is a flat plane, and then I guess we need cover objects, and eventually it's going to be a dresser instead of just being a block of red that you would hide behind or whatever. <laughs> um, but seeing it, there is... There is almost and like it's almost like pulling the curtain back with a wink and revealing 
level design in a strange way. It, it's it's mechanical, but it still it still has a great deal of skill involved. It's impressive, but also monotonous, right? Like it is hard and and repetitive and iterative to build a level in a game. It isn't like it isn't just like imp, like jazz improvisation. Like it is more mechanical than that. Um, but the result is something really impressive, uh, and that's a really cool way, like, who knows if that was intentional? Who knows if what they really just wanted to do was make a level where the level gets built as you play through it, um, and that's all they intended, but I, I think there is that second level uh, there, which is really great. I would love to play that. I would love to play a level that actually is constructing itself sort of around you, yeah. and in some way interacts in some fascinating fashion you know uh, stanley parable style but with the budget to actually you know construct itself completely around you not right. in some scripted way do you want there to be interaction in that sequence yeah like so that in that way like <laughs> so a little more clockwork mansion in that way right right like, right yeah personally the this is the sort of stuff i i geek out about i get really really excited about level design and the way in which it uh it speaks to like a designer's intentions and mm. speaks to their intentions to like play with you and your expectations. It's, it's something that's not done masterfully often. So when it is done masterfully, it feels like, Oh man, that's, that's it. It's like falling in love. You just know like, Oh man, that's, that's choice. So let me know when you get to the first uh, Zelda dungeon. Oh God. I'm in the, I'm in the first, um, like air, I'm still in the plateau right now. Right. But but, you're, uh, you're pretty far off, but but yeah. oh, God. Uh, ten hours from now you'll get to a dungeon maybe, and okay. you let me know because they are they are they're not Clockwork Mansion, they're not affecting calls, they're not like any of the great levels of 2016, um, but they are interactive in a way that I think they're interactive and require a certain sort of mastery um, about spatial understanding that I think you'll really vibe with. Oh, that's really, really good to hear because I'm I am a, a huge Zelda fan. Like I do love a good a good Zelda dungeon, even if the puzzle design is is fairly simple in a lot mm -hmm. of cases. It, it can be very, you know, I think about the mirror puzzles in something like right. Wind Waker or I, or I think about, you know, some of the water puzzles and not not in the water temple in Ocarina you love of the Time. Water but temple. In, You're a water temple apologist. <laughs> I mean, I do like it, but but I actually think the water temple in Majora's Mask is, is even mm. better and more interesting in the way it, it sort of everything literally flows from one room to another and kind of affects the entire world there it's 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 really uh it's it's still it's a little difficult to talk about sometimes uh in terms of of getting it just right because you you're mm -hmm. trying to satisfy so many things uh as a designer in in making spaces and in making spaces that are actually really interesting and mm -hmm. have a sense of discovery but also don't confound everyone at the same time like it's it's a really really difficult balance to hit but it, it is very exciting to me to hear that the new zelda does that on a level that uh Oh god, I didn't mean to say on a level, but <laughs> that actually does that in a in a really interesting and fun way. Well, something I want to I want I want to ask, sort of relating to that, uh, is that so? I think what, what one thing that jumps out at me with Titanfall Two is that this approach to level design almost comes out of nowhere uh, because like Titanfall One skips a single player campaign completely. Titanfall mm -hmm. 2, there's no expectations around it whatsoever. You, like, basically, they, their mission statement heading into it is like, Big Mechs, storyline. <laughs> we got them now. Yep. <laughs> we got both of them. 
Uh, that's that's basically what they come into, and then almost from the first, like th- this level I'm talking about does not take place too far into the campaign. Like, you know, you basically like after you sort of plunge into the action, the first like real like place you go uh, is, is like is the, the beginning of the sequence, mm-hmm. and so it's like almost from like <laughs> it goes from zero to meta uh, in like the space of like a <laughs> tutorial mission. Uh, basically, right. and then and then it's like, okay, cool, uh, you got this, right? So here we're gonna start deconstructing uh, the elements of level design in in military right. shooters. Hope you enjoy. And I find that <laughs> interesting because, like in in Dishonored Two, you kind of expect it from from Dishonored uh, to to some extent because it's always been a little more like aware of its lineage. Uh, I would say, and yeah. and it's yeah. part of a lineage that's always sort of broken, uh, like classic level design rules and sort of rewritten rewritten the book uh but very thief yeah yeah and i guess what what i find interesting is is usually it would seem to me that you'd almost have to have those uh referent works uh both for your own game but also you need to know your audience uh has those right. has those references as well you have to trust that your audience is is, is going to get that uh, in order for this stuff to to, to really land uh, correctly, and you know, one of the, one of the things these you know a series a lot of great level design touches on a lot is of course like is Zelda, um, yeah, right? And there's a lot of like foundational rules in how to like teach and train a player and how to reveal things within. Uh, and a, a seemingly straightforward space uh, using like level design, like, you know, tools and tricks. But with Zelda, I've always felt, and, and I'm curious how, uh, how, how the newest one uh, fits into this. And maybe this is unfair, but I've always felt Zelda sort of by necessity has to be a little bit, assume a certain degree of uh, naivete on the part mm-hmm. of its audience that, that it can't be too winking so... because... Yeah. So that's probably the thing. So, I mean, I, I think it's a good week to talk about deconstruction here um, <laughs> in both the literal and the philosophical senses, because I think it's, I don't know if it's fair to say, but I'm going to say it. I think that Breath of the Wild is uh, an active attempt from Nintendo and the, and the team who, who made this game to deconstruct all of, to deconstruct in the physical, like, masonry sense the walls and the 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 the, uh, uh, the extra wings added onto the Zelda um, <laughs> franchise over the decades, right? Like Zelda is a thirty-one year old series. The first one was released in nineteen eighty-six, um, and in a lot of ways, it feels like this is getting back to that initial game. Um, something that got pointed out on the Giant Bombcast. I, I feel I forget who it was who pointed this out, but um, the uh, the way the map works in this game is that like a lot of open world games, you climb a tower and a section of the map gets added, but no activities get added to that map. There are place names, you know, you might know that, you know, Lanayru Peak is over here or that there is, uh, you know, Hateno Village or Kakariki Village or whatever, like that might show up, but there's no like, oh, here's a quest for you to go get. Here's a shrine for you to go do. It, it returns to that original NES style of here is the world you go explore it and so and so by getting rid of a lot of the um, the kind of 
stuff that came along after Ocarina of Time, by, by breaking that off, they kind of went to back to basics, right? They kind of said, maybe we don't need four bedrooms. Maybe what we need is a nice <laughs> home to retire in, maybe a study, maybe a you know, single bedroom and a nice living room and a nice kitchen. We don't really need a dining room. We basically all just eat in the kitchen. That's fine. Like, that's that's what, back to basics. So Nintendo is settling, is, is what you're saying. <laughs> it's settling. But except, except what they're also doing is they're saying... Um, let's look at what we loved about that experience originally. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was this notion of, uh, you know, almost being bewildered. Uh, And I think that was true for every game in that series, for me anyway, until Twilight Princess. Um, You know, I didn't actually play... Uh, Wind Waker at the time when it came out, and I suspect I would have loved that game when it came out because I had the time to play it. I just didn't have a GameCube, yeah. um, and when I've since tried to go back, I just haven't had the free time to devote to a Zelda that style of Zelda game. Or, or maybe that that's not true. Maybe it's true to say that it just didn't capture me enough for it to become a priority over other newer releases, right? Um, and, and so when I think about what they get at, is this notion of bewilderment of of seeing of being shook by the scope of the world and by the the variety of ways in which you can interact with it the first zelda ever then legend of zelda and and then even the adventures of link the sequel are filled with weird little things that you could never imagine if you just put that cart into the system you need the raft to cross the river bombs can blow open holes in the back of of caves or on the sides of walls there is a boss that literally eats bombs as is the way of, of killing it there's the famous dodongo dislike smoke um like all of those sorts of things that were scripted then are now built into uh, an interplay of systems in a way that, you know, to me, of course, feels like Far Cry 2 or like Dragon's Dogma or like any number of these kind of like anecdote generators. Um, and so I feel like they get back to that feeling and they've kind of deconstructed the game in that way, um, tossing aside the stuff that that seems excessive um, or that, that seems... I'm trying to think of the... Formulaic, of a, of a, maybe? Yeah, for, formulaic. Um, I, I kind of, I've written a couple of times now that for a long time the Zelda series has felt obstinate in its, in its like, dedication to its own conventions, right? Like, mm. it's stubborn. It's yeah. a stubborn series. Uh, and so I'm thrilled that they kind of stepped away from that. But at the same time, and this is the academic side, when you look at, when you look at Derrida, who wrote about deconstruction and, and post-structure. Here we go. Now it's an begin. awesome Walker episode. Now it's a fucking awesome... Yeah, we're in it now. <laughs> an important thing, like, the process of deconstruction is not reversal. That is, like, a key thing about deconstruction. And it's the thing I think people forget all the time when they think they're doing deconstruction. You know, um, the, the popular, very easy deconstruction thing to work with here is, like, there is a status quo. The status quo is people believe that men are, are more, you know, uh, intelligent than women. The deconstruction is not, no, actually, women are more uh, intelligent than men. That's not deconstruction. That's just reversal. And and I think that there are political and rhetorical reasons for reversal at, at times where we want to gather morale and fight a fight and whatever. Um, but deconstruction is the is the subversion of that binary right like you consider the statement and then you you dig into into it until you can reveal that um the the statement around which those binaries are built man and woman are actually much more fluid and interactive than you think that they are Um, and so for me in zelda the, the way it does that sort of deconstruction is by revealing that in in some ways like the 
the thing that gave you the feeling of adventure in uh, in Ocarina of Time and in the rest of the kind of 3D Zelda games was this intense scripting. And it was like, here is here is a dungeon and there's one way through a dungeon. Um, and you, you get the solution to the puzzle and that is it. And so instead of saying like, no, actually unscripted elements are the solution. That's unscripted elements are, you know, kind of just, just systems interaction is better than, than just scripted stuff. Um, Breath of the Wild combines those two really intelligently and blends them. Uh, Jason Schreier over at Kotaku's, uh, his, his review begins by identifying a, uh, an early shrine um, that I'm going to spoil here. There's one shrine. There are a hundred shrines. I promise <laughs> you, you have other shrines. Uh, it's a sort of maze-like. It's a gyroscope maze. Like you, you tilt the, the switch or the pro controller oh, wow. to move a, a maze. Uh, and this is the, his experience was identical to mine, which is great. So you drop a ball and then you have to like, almost like one of those old ball bearing puzzles. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like when you were growing up and you have to move it through the thing. And like Jason, I spent five minutes str- struggling with this. Not struggling, but getting closer and closer. And then as if by mistake, I think I may have just put the controller down. I realized you could flip the whole thing upside down. You flip <laughs> the maze on its back and it's flat and the ball drops and it rolls exactly where you need it to, off to the side and into the pit. And it's just like, oh my God, like that's brilliant. That's, wow. that's this combination of having complete control or having a, you know, a great deal of control over the systems of the game. But also someone <laughs> made the smart idea to let me turn it over and to have that side flat and to have it perfectly aligned so that I could just totally slip it through. And that combination is so much more powerful than if they had only done the thing of, um, you know, all we need is intense systems interaction, uh, which is which is how you get something like No Man's Sky, which is a game that I like a lot, right? But like, there's no scripting in that game, right? There are no, there is no Mount Lanayru, there is no Shrine of Wisdom, there is no great dungeon in that game. It is just can these systems entertain you? And for most people, that seems to be no. Um, so I, I big ups to Nintendo. I'm, I'm in love with this game. Apologies. Like, I'm going uh, to keep gushing about Zelda for the next couple of weeks, I think. Please do, because this is really, really heartening. I was actually a little terrified uh, sort of going into this, because mm-hmm. I I think, like many people, I have some some pretty serious open-world fatigue uh, mm-hmm. going in, even yeah, even as somebody who really liked Mafia 3, for sure, um, right. and, and still thinks that, like, you know, so far, I'm only, like, two hours into Zelda, so... You know, still still feeling real good about The Witcher Three, right? As as mm-hmm. sort of the you know the mm-hmm. one to beat. But I'm I'm so heartened to hear this that uh, it feels in a lot of ways like Nintendo actually took the things that are great about open mm-hmm. worlds, about that sort of systemic design and all the things, all the weird things that can go wrong, all the weird ways you can you know break or not even break, but like use the rules and mm-hmm. weird and creative and wonderful ways to. You know the emergent g- gameplay thing that that everybody uh, overused yep. again in like two thousand eight, <laughs> but <laughs> um, because what I always loved about Zelda was that linear, like incredible, super scripted kind of design, but it always made me feel smart. Right, I always right. felt smart going through the forest temple in Ocarina of Time. You know, figuring out the order of the ghosts I needed to shoot or what. I forget the exact right, puzzles, right, of right. course, but like that sounds right. Feel, yeah, feeling as if like Nintendo just had this perfect in the best Zelda uh, dungeons. It always felt to me like you're in like this perfect flow state of like puzzle, puzzle, combat, 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 mm-hmm. puzzle. You know, whatever the the blend is. I'm not sort of like prescribing it right here, but 
you just, you were always doing some new action that was fun. You were jumping, you were running, you were fighting, you were sort of having your slow moments where you have to figure out an environment. And they were just designed so tightly and so well uh, to make that whole experience feel good and make you feel smart and powerful and like an adventurer who, who you know, figured out these trials and these mazes mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And that, that was what I loved the most about Skyward Sword, at least the amount of the game I could get through with not having great controls, um, <laughs> which was another sort of issue I think that uh, all kind of uh, core Nintendo games went through for a time there. But I was really scared because I was I was afraid that, oh, it's an open world now and, and that's cool and I know they'll do it in a different way. They're not going to just remake Assassin's Creed with Link on it. I know Nintendo won't do that. That's that's just so completely out of character. I was so for afraid they would. I was so yeah. afraid they would. Like, I mean, like I was so afraid, for instance, that there would be npcs in this game that don't have names um oh yeah but but every villager has a name and has unique dialogue that was handwritten and that contributes to a sense that these that this is like even the witcher has has placeholder npcs right like obviously the setting is different um in a big way right like the witcher has huge cities that of course some characters are going to be you know which number seven yeah right right. exactly exactly (laughs) um and this doesn't do that, but but I I mean to that to that point, I think Horizon was a game that could have named all of its characters. Even in the big city, there are not yeah. that many characters, or there, there maybe should have been less. And it's a similar setting of this kind of post post apocalypse. Um, yeah. And in that way, like I look at those two games, and I think Horizon and and Breath of the Wild, and it makes me think a lot about the thing we call open world games. Yeah. Um, I, I am like very close to trying to figure out a way to make a, a really compelling case that we need to put the term to rest. Um, <laughs> games have open worlds. Well, you've, um, in you've the same about, way that games have guns. You, you've got about two minutes to figure out how to make that case because one of our letters this week is is very oh, pointed Lord. about oh, this. So like, okay, uh, the egg timer <laughs> is, is, is is running. Um, well, no, because I think sandbox is a different sandbox. Is like Zelda is a sandbox game in that it is about putting these things together in different in different ways and saying like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to use stasis on this orb and then I'm going to hit the orb a bunch and it's going to save up the kinetic energy and then it's go, going to go blasting off into the ogre's face. Yeah. Um, that's a sandbox thing, right? Horizon is not that, in, or, or it it, uh, it aspires to be in moments, but those are brief asides, not the not the kind of the main course. Yeah. Um, I'm mixing my metaphors here. That's all right. But, but yeah. So so I I'm really I need to figure this out because like I feel like we use that term and it means a dozen different things. Like yes, The Witcher and Grand Theft Auto and Breath of the Wild and Red Dead Redemption all have open worlds um or all have big spaces anyway uh and so do the saints row games and so but those they're such vastly different different. things that i don't know that we can i don't know that the term is useful um and and because of that i don't know that open world fatigue means anything anymore yeah what i think that means is like this game is poorly paced or the ui is bad or the writing is terrible or, or the writing just doesn't pull me in or the progression mechanics don't work like we need to get we need to dig deeper we need to go deeper yeah, uh, yeah. well adult busy book that's what i'm gonna just call there's there's <laughs> a really games strong that i don't case. like boy that's <laughs> super apt actually like you you sort of uh nailed my major problem with games like that but yeah. you know going going to the the topic at hand i, I sort of think that so 
one of the things the sort of like deconstruction breaking down of, of game elements and conventions requires is there being successful and compelling conventions to draw from right like right. Yeah. like right. Titanfall 2 isn't made by Valve but but it, like I heard some Half-Life 2 comparisons made made fairly early Half-Life 2 and Portal comparisons and they they're actually pretty apt right like it's a, it's a game that's very like seems in many cases to be sort of responding to like Half-Life 2 in some ways, right? Like all the level design tricks that, you know, you learn uh, from playing that series, Titanfall mm-hmm. 2 is kind of directly speaking to it. And do ignoring an a lot of, of what's something, happening. Do you have an example of something that tries to do this, but the conventions weren't well known enough for it to land? Mm, that attempts to deconstruct. Um, I think, mean, see, immediately, like, what what I tend to think of more are all the games that try to crib from uh, the sure, more successful the games side. and don't succeed in either construction or deconstruction. <laughs> um, yeah, like the Matt Hazard games from, you know, oh, sure. mid, mid late 2000s, I suppose. <laughs> well, the thing that's wild about those is, like, it, they clearly knew the conventions that they were trying to deconstruct and then just didn't. It just, just wasn't could. a good game, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, but but I think games like this... So, so Dishonored can speak to 20 years of stealth games. And right. a, a non-trivial portion of its audience is in that same conversation and mm-hmm. has the same uh, referent objects in mind. And so that allows a lot of cool things to happen. And they, they, it doesn't vanish so far up its own ass that people are going to be left out in the cold. Like, it's still going to be cool for, for other people. But, sure. but it's this extra layer that's, that's added to, to, um, to the scene. And Titanfall 2 is sort of playing in, 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 a, similar, in a similar vein. But I think the most we've gotten to deconstruction with so-called open-world games is sort of the Saints Row the Third approach of <laughs> it's all ridiculous, right. isn't this crazy? <laughs> right. And we're going to create sure. this like amoral cartoon world where somehow all this shit makes a, a, a modicum of sense internally. Uh, and I and I think it's kind of revealing that that's the closest we've come. That basically it's like skinning the um, skinning all the same interactions differently mm-hmm. and more and making them more wacky and right. like. Adding a wackier and and what really well written but still wackier radio play uh, into the background, but when you look around for okay, who is subverting or deconstructing the open world? I, I hate calling it the open world genre, but who who is taking those conventions and subverting or deconstructing and like doing, them? Doing totally meaningfully again, like. It is so hard for me not to just wave the Zelda flag right now because, like, <laughs> you, you should look at something like, wave it. Like, you yeah. just, we look at something like Witcher, and I feel like The Witcher Three exemplifies the genre incredibly well, and 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 does many of the things that the genre can do really well. Um, I, I I think that Mafia Three does many of the things that the genre can do well. Yeah. Uh, but the thing that like, just the thing about Breath of the Wild inside of this space is that it cuts away so much of the clutter the busy booking that Danielle was talking about to where like, yes, I have a quest log that's filled with quests. They don't all show up on the screen at once. I can pick one very easily to show up and have a, a spot marker. If they're, if, if my character knows where to go, right? Like often it is the case that, so one of the, one of the recurring things is that there are places in the world that you need to get to, to kind of uh, inform your character about 
a state of something that happened in the past. Um, and there are, it, you know, you, you just kind of have a picture of a place. Like, okay, there's a there's a cave in the background, and okay, mm-hmm. like, um, and so other games have done this. Skyrim has done this. Red Dead did this. Uh, and I actually hated it in those games. Like, I really hate that sort of, like, here's a treasure map. Um, good luck. And I think I realized that the reason they worked for me here, one, is because they were limited. There's, like, 17 or 18 of them total. Two, there are um, some diegetic ways of getting help. There's a painter who wanders the world, and when you find him, he can give you a little bit of a hint, a, a general direction of where to go if there happens to be one nearby, because he's a painter. He's a wandering painter. He's seen these these places. And then three, the way that the, the game world has been littered with interesting things to do um, means that you, you end up being very familiar with these places in such a way that even if you don't know the specific angle, you notice a type of flower growing in, in the photo, or you notice uh, a type of bird that is nearby, or a general sort of sense of like, okay, this is this, this is a snowy place, but it's not that snowy place, it's this other snowy place because of the way the rocks look here. Uh, and that's like, the only way that that happens is if it has already encouraged you. It's almost like, Rob, it's almost like uh, a micro version of the thing you're saying, right? Like you need familiarity with a, a genre or with a set of conventions in order to to subvert them and do weird things with them. In this case, it's like Zelda needed to build a, an entire game and then inside of that game subvert the expectation of having a waypoint marker <laughs> or having a direct place for you to go to go fight a guy. Um, and it manages to do that. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wave this. I'm going to wave this flag as hard as every Witcher 3 fan <laughs> waved the banner of the Witcher 3. Well, you're in the right place. A couple of years ago. <laughs> like that's that's I'm going to use that enthusiasm. It's my turn. Damn it. Yeah. I, I I totally this is this is related, I think, to the topic and related in a way that it's 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 about sort of appreciation. Um, and this could go off in a totally other direction. But I I feel like I'm very ready to fall in love with a game again. <laughs> and yeah. while we're talking about Zelda like this, I'm uh, I'm very, very excited uh, to see how it does all those brilliant and clever things. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, hearing how. It's it's not personal, but it's like a. It feels touched, you know, like like a person who had a a, a vision touched every fucking mm-hmm. element of this. Like having a painter that gives you clues for something that's that's so brilliant and that's so charming and that's so like yes that that's a thing that would be in a world like this in a in a charming fantasy world like this. Like it's there there's something about the level of craft. Uh, in 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 just very very few games that come out every year, but there's something about that that I like. That's why I like this. That's why I like video games still. Mm-hmm. You know, despite you know whatever else happens in the world, like that. I, the fact that people are are still making things that are genuinely there to delight and surprise you just it just makes me happy. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> I figured out I figured out a case of a developer who subverts things but does not have the con- but there is not an audience that understands the conventions enough to enjoy what's being subverted and also sometimes the execution isn't as great as it could be. Rob, it's 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 Arkson. It's Arkson games. Arkson it's games. oh man. Uh, it's Bionic Dues, it's The Last Federation, it's Starward Rogue, it's it's AI War, it's all of these games that are like totally like deeply trying to flip genre on its head. And then the audience goes, mm, mm, because it's it's so small. And the sort of people who might see uh, an endless legend 
or uh, a civilization and, and say, like, oh, yeah, I'll try that for a weekend. They see these games and they go, like, these don't make any sense. What, what, is, what are all these numbers? <laughs> Why do the graphics look like this? Uh, and and it's, it's such a shame because every once in a while they put out something that or, or put out, they did put out something. I don't know what the current state of uh, Arkson is. I mean, current state um, is scary. Yeah, that's what my understanding is. Try out some Arkson games. Go go check them out. They How do you some, spell some this? A R C E N. Is oh, it Arkson? I've always said Arkin. Arkin. That makes yeah. sense. Um, they make some things that are really neat uh, and also are often really um, tr- troubled. Oh, they made a valley without wind. Abstruse. Okay. I'm, yes, they made a, I, a valley without wind is a great example of something that's trying to God, play in that such space. Yeah. Studio. They made Tidalis. They did. Oh, little, God. Like, match three, like, mm-hmm. like, like the, no, their studio makes no sense whatsoever. But, <laughs> but, but what they're always trying to do is, like, these are people who understand some genre really well, and then instead of just making a good one of those, they're like, oh, well, we want to build a, a strategy game where you don't build anything. Like, what? Like, yeah, we're just going to build a 4X game where you don't build any units, and you don't build any buildings. Uh, what do you... Oh, oh, who is this for? And the answer seems to often be like, oh, us and our very dedicated fan base of a few thousand people total. Uh, and I think that's what happens when you don't have... When you're not trying to subvert something that's very that's very established. Um, you know, Titanfall 2 works in one of the most popular genres that there is. Uh, and I think that this is like a Beyond Games thing, right? Like, yeah. the best hip-hop that's come out in the last decade that's been very subversive and cool comes from people who understand and love hip-hop and has an on-ramp for those who, for listeners who also love and understand hip-hop, right? Like, um, that stuff, same thing with film, right? Like, the stuff that's happening in the truly uh, kind of independent space, the the sort of like outsider art stuff that happens in film and in music and in in all sorts of artistic production might be genius at subverting something that you don't see but the stuff that i think maybe pushes a medium forward in terms of what it's what it's able to do in the in the current uh, moment needs to appeal to a wider base for for it to be able to affect things that way um in the case of zelda that's yeah. because it's so pretty and like it just yeah. it's so pretty and the, the it's it is quote-unquote polished and the presentation is through the roof and so people who like scoffed at weapon durability in far cry 2 are now like defending it which <laughs> let me tell you this whole like people like this game that to me reminds me of my favorite games that people have poo-pooed for years is there is a degree of not schadenfreude it's this other thing it's uh, it's like the opposite of being mad that people like your your indie band it's like i fucking told you people that this stuff was cool all yeah. you needed was a new coat of paint damn it <laughs> anyway. I am a really good feeling. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Oh, <laughs> uh, God. Anyway, <sighs> games. I'll say one thing, one last thing about deconstruction. I did play Please. something last night, actually, and you, Austin, you were there. I was. Uh, that that does a little bit of the meta thing for sure, uh, in terms of of sort of referencing and and i don't know if it exactly deconstructs it's it's more of a homage kind of dealio but it 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 does some things that are different and that is uh stories untold which is a a horror uh 
IF game with some slightly experimental, I guess, elements uh, in it as well. And the, sort of the first game in it, there's four stories in this game, um, and you're you're always sort of at an old computer, at a you know '80s style sort of PC, and you are physically you yourself in the world are at a computer, and then you in the game, whoever you are, you're also sitting at a computer. So there's a 3D model of a keyboard, you know, there's a 3D model of a monitor that you're also looking at, and there's lighting effects and other stuff kind of going on in the world as you're playing these you know sort of horror IF games. And then later in the game, you're you're doing uh, weird experiments as well as interacting with sort of a, a very traditional uh, text parser based uh, interactive fiction. I just wanted to shout that out, even though it's not. Uh, I don't think it's it's deconstructing things on the level that like you know the Clockwork Mansion is necessarily, but it's it's referencing something in a fairly intelligent way and adding its own spin on it. So stories mm -hmm. untold. Okay, it's just you know cool I think. Too. Just something What's I want to interject. Like, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, just because it's a, it's a really good point, and uh, it, it should be it should be thrown to the mix. Uh, Justin Cavern, uh, who used to do an absolute ton of like level design blogging, I'm not sure he's as prolific as as, as uh, he used to be, but um, after Dishonored Two came out, he's on Twitter, and he was talking about the Clockwork Mansion. And after we've praised it, I think this is an important caveat. He notes that it actually, when you boil the Clockwork Mansion down, it's not that sophisticated a level. Like, it's hmm. really flashy. It's really impressive at first glance. But like the character itself, it's not as sophisticated or clever or deep as it purports to be. Um, so it's an interesting case of, like, deconstruction and, like, almost like postmodern irony. Uh, in the service of further establishing the characters, uh, ki both kind of a douche, and also <laughs> totally isn't as smart as he thinks it is. It's 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 subverting subversion in in some ways, right? Where it's right. like, look, fundamentally, this is kind of a childish pursuit, but look, we can do it. <laughs> the, yeah. the the that's like super good because because that second step is almost insulating in some ways. <laughs> and I, I, I wonder if that was something that designers like thought about ahead of time or something after the fact where they were like, all right, we gotta, we gotta nod to the fact that we know that this is smoke and mirrors, <laughs> not just a little bit, um, which is, which is great. The thing I was going to say while Daniel was talking about stories untold is a thing we haven't spoken about at all because there is a complete failure in games criticism to think about interactive fiction is interactive fiction. Um, you look at games like Galatea or Isle, Galatea by Emily Short or Isle by Sam Barlow, yeah. which you really, you, which again, do the deconstruction thing of what uh, an interactive fiction story is supposed to be. Um, in, in Emily Short's case with Galatea, it, it, you know, she says, okay, um, interactive fiction stories are supposed to be about, you know, momentum and uh, narrative unfolding and multiple characters and multiple locations. And instead she says like, no. It's about one person and you and build 70 endings or something, 75 or something from that and some limited interactions. And in Isle, Sam Barlow says, um, you know, oh, our, our uh, IF stories are supposed to be about fighting with the parser in the way that you were doing last night uh, with stories <laughs> untold, Danielle. Yeah. Um, and instead of... Uh, instead of that, instead of saying like, okay, I'm going to keep trying commands, it's a game about a single move. You make one move. You you say, 
you know, check out or you, you, you do one thing in the shopping uh, in this grocery store yeah. and that is the entirety of your move and you keep building on that information. Um, and those are games that both literally and, and kind of philosophically deconstruct the genre. Um, I just wish, I wish we paid more attention to IF. You know, I in, do too. Our field. It's a, it's a shame. Including me, to be clear. I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing other people. I'm not like dissing people who don't do it so much as I'm mad at myself. Uh, yeah. <laughs> wishing that the structures of capitalism allowed us to, to pay attention to cool shit instead of just shit that has an audience. Well, and I, I just need my, I just need somebody to give slide a list of wrecks across the table to right. me that like, look, I want something that's going to freak my shit out the way the uncle uh, who worked at, who works at yes. Nintendo yes. Uh, freaked Shout my out to shit Michael out. Lutz. A game that, like, I was like, I don't know what this is going to be. And, like, almost could not finish because, Mm -hmm. like, it just got inside my head so completely. Um, Yeah. So, (laughs) I'm looking to dive into that a little more. Uh, Please. uh, I want the the scary (laughs) IF. I want the scary Twine games. It's so so good when it's done well i mean that's that's the other problem with it is because it's so accessible there there is certainly a lot of mm-hmm. you know you know somebody doing their their first one and maybe it wasn't the best right. thing in the most universe. zines that's were totally shit. cool it's right, totally cool and okay but that's you the know. point in, or not the point but it's like that's it's not just like totally cool and okay but like good like yeah. not all art is for mass consumption. Some of it is for the person making it. Exactly. Um, exactly. And and sometimes people who want to make stuff for other people fuck up and aren't great at it. And and it takes a while to get good at it. And it's totally. wonderful so, that that we have. A, it's like a beautiful. It's like it's like building coral or something. We needed all that. Mm-hmm. You know, all those fish had to die first. And that and now Jeez. we have this beautiful reef. And it's wait gorgeous. is that where, is that where coral comes from? Is it dead fish? It's, isn't it like they're maybe I don't they're know. not I'm fish? There, there's some kind of sea life. It's, I don't know the distinction well, coral, between like coral. Coral do and... die. Coral are alive, but I think it might actually be built on like fossils. I'm not sure though. Hmm. I might be mixing. Well, a we're lot gonna of get letters. Metaphors. Yeah, let's coral, read some damn letters. letters. We're done with coral. Is it, is it letters time? <laughs> I think it's no. I, I was I was just saying we're gonna we're gonna get we're gonna hear from the coral truthers. Uh, uh, I see. In a day, oh, good. It, it probably is letters time. Yeah, I think. I think it's a good idea. Rob, I'm going to I'm going to read the first one here. Yeah. So I'm going to let you get that second one that I think is the one that uh, you know, we're going to No, wait, forget it. We're we're doing it. We're doing it live. It's good. Oh, so our boy. first letter comes from Ahmed. Ahmed writes, "Hey DNR. I'm also in a rather uncanny manner rewatching Avatar for the fourth time. And without a doubt, the things that this world managed to accomplish is absolutely inspiring to creators." Everybody's favorite character seems to be the lovable and goofy Sokka. I've always gotten crap from friends for for loving the Lost Prince, whose name is Zuko, an editorial note there. Imagine my surprise when you agreed with me. I'm not the only only one, but Zuko alone is your favorite episode. I also think Tales of Ba Sing Se is the very least, at the very least, rather, a top three. Can a character be intrinsically and unapologetically evil without being two-dimensional? Avatar says, hell yeah. Wait until you get to Amon in The Legend of Korra. Which, uh, and then they're asking, which video games, movies, TV shows do you think have the best villains? Vaz from Far Cry 3 is a really good example. Ahmed. So I just want to throw in here. Ahmed yeah. wrote a really good breakdown of why Fire Lord Ozai is actually mm. a much more nuanced and complex villain than he initially appears. But sure. I'm not sure you finished the series yet, Danielle, so I didn't, I didn't want you to be contaminated. Oh, I'm done. 
I did it. Okay. I did it. Okay. Off. Then, yeah. Damn it! I wish okay. I. It's okay. He had a really good breakdown of uh, of, of what's <gasps> going on with Fire Lord Ozai. But Quick question: Do people not like Zuko? What? This is the they thing. Just... Like, I'm actually surprised that Zuko's our favorite character. But like, how could he Pretty sure not like be him. the favorite character? Right. That's what I'm saying. Like, season three is based is like 50 percent Zuko fan service. Yeah. yeah. Easily. I haven't finished the show. I I am, I think I told this to Danielle recently, yeah. but uh, you know how it gets to the day of Black Sun? Is that what it's called? Yeah. The day of Black Sun? Yeah, it's like the second to last episode. Yeah. I got to the day of Black Sun and then I went to grad school and didn't finish. You are kidding me. <laughs> I'm not kidding me. Uh, this is like four or five years oh ago. Oh my God. Six, maybe. It was 2010. Oh my so God. Seven years ago. Seven years ago. <laughs> uh, I got to the day of Black Sun. One, I watched the first like 30 seconds and then literally had to like put my computer in I have my to bag go to grad school. and go to the airport to move to California. Wow. Uh, and just never got the chance. I've also, I'd also the last episode of Mad Men I ever watched was The Suitcase, which is my favorite episode Well, that, is, the, that is where to stop. Yeah. It's my favorite episode of anything ever. Um, but like then I just, same, same reason. It was like the next day school started and that was it for me and Prestige Television. Uh, not entirely, but largely. Uh, wow. Anyway, villains... Well, I'll, I'm going to, can I just make a confession? I've made this, I think, to Rob before, but I, Farscape is my favorite entertainment in the universe. Like, but you? My, my favorite game, my favorite movie, my favorite, out of everything in the world, Farscape is uh-huh. my favorite thing. I've never seen the end of Farscape. Ooh. I've watched oh, the entire right. series like yeah. five or six times now, all right. the way through. Right. I was waiting. I was watching it with another friend, and we were, it was going to be the mm. big thing that I was going to mm-hmm. see it with her, and then we didn't finish. Anyway, so you know what? I understand. <sighs> I get it. I get it, man. I get it. Wait, was Peacekeeper Wars a casualty of a breakup? Not exactly. Okay. It was more Is it- literally that I was so fucking depressed that this show was not yeah. going to continue beyond it that I couldn't bear to watch it end. So basically for for you, Far Cry 2, yeah. if not Far Cry 2, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Farscape. <laughs> Farscape is still alive somewhere. Still like, alive, man. Well, there's Farscape mm. comics. There's, you know, the, the whole Yeah, they're not very alive. good. I'm sorry. I tried. I, I'm sad about that. Yeah. Well. All right. Know. So, villains. Unapologetically <laughs> evil villains that somehow manage to avoid being two dimensional. Yeah, of course. Uh, it just requires a, a whole hell of a lot of complexity and sort of maturity in it. I mean, I'm. So I'm watching The Wire again right now. Um, I'm in season one of The Wire. Sure. And uh, I think there's there's several characters that you could look at as being a, a, a traditional villain. You know, people who, who do a whole hell of a lot of murder, you know, at, at least on one end. But it's nothing in that show, at least from what I've seen of it. Because I've, I've seen the later seasons. I actually reviewed season five, Once Upon a Time, or the first few episodes of it for a queer website. But... I wasn't a fan previously, and I had to do that whole thing where I caught up with it very quickly, so I, I never watched the entire series, so this is my first time through the whole thing. And there's just a whole hell of a lot of fucking complexity in the world. Imagine that. And this was one of the sort of first shows that was on that level of, of sort of showing that complexity in terms of, hey, people do really fucked up things, but guess what? It's partially because they live in a really fucked up world, and that's that's at least a good chunk of it. Um, yeah, but you know, but, Stringer but Bell complexity, is complexity. Yeah. I mean, well, and Stringer Bell is a, a great example. Like, doesn't that complexity also mean that 
doesn't it sort of muddy the waters of a character being intrinsically and unapologetically yeah. evil? Because like, because that's the thing. Like when I think about the wire, maybe the closest I would come to saying a character is, well, hang on, no, I'm yeah. leaving mm-hmm. out the one. Uh, okay, so maybe you're gonna say Marlo. Omar. It's, no, it's Marlowe. Marlo. Okay, Marlowe. Marlo. Yeah, it's Marlowe Singer who is like who is like just id right is yeah. just yeah. like I want it personified um and who is fantastic but i think part of what makes marlo so fantastic is the moment that you realize that chris parlo and and uh snoop are like there's almost a like you're not locked up in here or you know i'm not yeah. locked up in here with you you're locked up in here yes. with me situation with them yeah. when you realize they're not really his bodyguards they're his handlers um like they're making sure that marlo isn't just killing everybody because he's <laughs> capable and willing to do that uh, and so that means that they have to be the ones who kill a slightly lesser amount of people to, <laughs> to keep him like focused they'll do that uh is really great um but i also think the bureaucrats in the wire are the are ones who are evil. fucking evil Carse- yeah. carsetti i think is is yes. yeah uh, yes. and then what's the what's um what is the father-in-law of god what is his name um it's been too long since I've watched The Wire, clearly. <laughs> he becomes a teacher. Uh, Prez Belusky. Oh, Prez my Belusky's God. Oh, yeah, 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 Like, father-in-law yeah, yeah. or whatever. Oh, God, that guy's a piece of shit. That guy's yeah. a piece of shit. Stan something? Yeah. No, I forget his name. I know who you're talking um, about. The Polish yeah. police captain who's completely yes. amoral. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Complete or asshole. also um, the cousin in season two. Uh, sure. who Who is not necessarily completely evil, Wait, but is like... The fuck-up cousin? With the duck? The fuck-up cousin. The duck. Oh, he's not even Don't at all. He's, he's the... He kills that duck, Rob. He yeah, kills that's pretty that fucked up. Yeah, but that's because he's like he's he's kind of deranged. Like, but that's everybody. That's well, that's every that's, that's everybody problem. on that show. Yeah, but that's that's everybody in the world. That's it's everybody just like, in the universe. Yes. Okay, but hang on. Is is Marlo complex or is he two dimensional? For me, he feels a little two dimensional. But I haven't seen the the full series. But like, I'm oh really? Yeah, because I I dude, I only started watching this a few years ago, and okay. after every season, get... I need about eight months to recover. Did you get to the, the my name is my name scene? Um, is that season four? It's season five. Yes, that's, it's that's towards that, the like, end. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, I think he gets complex once you realize who he is, um, and like as he starts to, as he starts to, his as his like smoothness starts to unfurl a little bit. Um, they there's a there's an interview I think with David Simon somewhere. I might be completely fabricating this uh <laughs> who effectively says it also may have been the cast the casting director and not david simon i think about it um that the reasons they cast the actor that they did for marlo he came in and did this really spirited read for the character which was completely wrong they needed this like affectless like murder boy yeah uh, and yeah, instead they got this really um this really passionate character and they said Oh no no no! He's perfect because when they reveal later in the series, the very towards the very end of the series, that he is actually just this like boiling rage, um, and not this like disaffected kind of detached uh, murder boy. Uh, we need that from him, and so like I think that that end game Marlowe is is a little bit more nuanced, um, and probably still what we would call evil. Yeah, I that's that's what I'm saying. Like I think evil is complex like it yeah of I, I think it has to be uh and the closer you get towards modeling the real world you know in a dramatic yeah. series the more the evil is going to have different shades of it it's not going to be 
the cartoon evil. I mean, like, sure, you can make media that has a cartoon evil. Star Wars is fun and mm-hmm. candy, but the more something actually goes for a dramatic representation of what the human experience is like, the more you're going to get fucking evil, but mm-hmm. still has a lot of other stuff going on, for sure. Uh, so I think I figured out who my favorite is in games, and it's the true villain behind stuff in Dragon Age Inquisition. Oh. Uh, and in Dragon Age Inquisition Trespasser, which is the very good DLC that wraps that game up, um, and that should have been part of the main game. Um, there is like a secret... There's a secret manipulator in the back uh, who their um, motivations are deeply uh, is deeply mistaken in, in what they believe um, and is uh, does is willing to do terrible evil things um, to right a wrong. And so in that way, that character is deeply complex and like there's a, a great backstory of of aspiration and failure. Um but then also, at no point am I willing to, to listen to anybody who defends this character. Yeah. Uh, this is a character who wants to do genocide. Um, yep. And so, like, <laughs> they're evil. They're evil. They're, if I'm going to ever say anyone is evil, it's going to be people who advocate for genocide. Or, or worse, who have goals that, that include the genocide of others. Uh, <laughs> that, of which, like, that is, like, a minor part of the larger plan. Or it's like, oh, yeah, the genocide is happenstance. But I'm cool with it. Um, <laughs> evil. That's evil. I'm fine with that. That's I'm not normally one to call people evil. But, <laughs> yeah. So, I think that's that character. For those who've played those games, you know who it is. And if you haven't, don't want to spoil yourself. You should, because it's really interesting. I think... Shout out to... Oh, wait, sorry. I had one more. Just no, one more. I was going to say shout out to uh, Michelle Forbes' character in Battlestar Galactica for being... Mm consummate evil but with a sympathetic backstory wait which one's michelle forbes she's the the deranged fucking captain of the pegasus oh god damn who has her lover literally like you know content warning but literally like gang raped uh to Mm. like punish her for being a cylon kind of thing like there is never going to be an excuse in the history of the universe that makes that okay ever she's still an interesting character who has motivations for doing the things she does but that's completely evil. So, yeah. Let me tell you about a game called Knights of the Old Republic 2. Oh, yeah? I'm not going to go down this, yeah. ro- this road. Yeah. But all of the villains, all of the antagonists of Knights of the Old Republic 2 are this. There are, I'd say there are four of them, and they're all this, and it's great. Yeah. Everyone should play Knights of the Old Republic 2. Um, I-, I will one day. So I-, I think another Star Wars reference here, uh, something I really loved about Rogue One mm. uh, is that you see two two examples of somewhat nuanced um but like completely and intrinsically evil uh characters there's very different forms of it and the the first is obviously vader and it's kind of a trick play because like vader's character complexity comes from the other films it's what we know about vader coming mm-hmm. into it that makes yeah. him a little more interesting in rogue one uh but R- rogue one i think is the first time we really see vader at peak sadism and that's even like passing empire strikes back right like empire strikes back he's very like capricious and uh results oriented let us say but like (laughs) you know there's there's a method to it uh that you can sort of discern even if it's like taken to this like ridiculous degree uh the end of rogue one where it turns into a horror movie for five minutes fuck it's um, so good as you see (laughs) vader just wreaking havoc and clearly enjoying it, right? Like 
he yeah. he relishes the murder fest that happens in this hallway uh, in a way you never really see him do anywhere else in the film. This is not the impatient, almost regretful Vader of you know as as Empire Strikes un, uh, Strikes Back unfolds. This is a Vader who like is really starting to just embrace the devil's pact he made, uh, mm-hmm. and it's it's yeah. it's really effective. But because we know where that character ends and and where he started uh for better or for worse uh it, it makes those moments land a little better but the thing it's I... the only time i've ever seen a lightsaber be convincing i love star wars yeah um but it's the only time that like I, just fucking shoot them just shoot the guy with the lightsaber just shoot, just shoot him in the back this is the only time i've ever been like no you can't do that you're terrified he has a laser sword yeah like, he's an invincible laser sword like devil like that's look at him um, the, the entire so, hallway is filled with that lurid light oh it's so good yes it's so good but the other villain is just a shitty bureaucrat yeah. who literally will do anything like destruction of like planets, cities, families, whatever. All of that is completely acceptable. Promotion. Yes, provided he gets a mid a middle management promotion. And it's oh, but man. it is I love that choice. I love that like right. they didn't even try to introduce like some other like they didn't go the Darth Maul right Maul exactly. route where it's like, "Oh shit, it's a Sith but even scarier, he's got horns." Yeah. Instead they're like, "You know what? It's your shitty boss." At your shitty yeah. job, that's yeah. that's who the empire is going to empower. It's a company like any other. It's a it's an institution like any other. Yep, and it empowers people like this who and are like willing to for their ambitions do just remarkably terrible things. Yeah, and it's so it's pitiful. So and I think it's 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 pitifulness is what makes it not just two dimensional, right? That like right. it is such a recognizable thing. Uh, There's almost also something at the end of that film where I don't, let me be clear, I'm never rooting for the dude what wants the Death Star, (laughs) but he's just having the worst day at work. He's just having, just everything's going wrong. And he has all these like backup plans and all of the, all of the redundancies are in place. He spent the extra money to get the extra security. You know, like he has the IT guys online. He has like the, the. You talk about you talk about cybersecurity. This guy is the best. It's the he best. Has the whole and geek squad. Yeah, he's the the whole geek squad is there. <laughs> oh my god! You need physical access to the files, and like, who's going to get that? Access. And you can't even like you can't even transmit the data without the right permissions. Like... Planes in this world can go faster than light, <laughs> and you need physical access. And then even once you have physical access, you then have to basically eat like get an Ethernet line plugged in in two different places, <laughs> and then. Then you have to do a radio, a directional radio broadcast <laughs> that gets through a shield, a, like a magic, like a shield, like a deflector shield. It's, it's the blackest of system. swans. It is just the... <laughs> Unbelievable. That, like, I was desperate for him to just at some point just say, like, I'm not even supposed to be at work today. <laughs> like, but that's what evil looks like, right? Like, that's what, this is what, when I look at, like, the current administration of people I don't trust or a history of of people who go into power, it's not always the person who uh, is being rallied around as a great leader or as, uh, a, you know, the, the, the demagogue. It is the middle manager. It is the lieutenant and not the general. 
Um, and so it is, that was a definitely a great character who is at once, once evil and somehow scarier for the fact that he has no aspiration to be a great Sith Lord or to inherit some ancient dark power. Like that's, that's, what's really scary. All right. Our next email comes from Devin from Cape Coral, Florida. Devin, where does the coral come from? That's the real question. Yeah, we really need to know. All right. Hey, Weekenders. First time, long time, etc. Lately, I find myself thinking a lot about Life is Strange and Kentucky Route Zero. Well, not even lately. It's pretty much all the time. Part of this, I suspect, has to do with the episodic nature of their releases. Both are story-driven games, and because I followed them from the beginning of their releases to the end, uh, though KRZ has yet to release its fifth and final act, they ended up occupying more space in my mind than if the entirety of these games had been released at once, and I just shotgunned shotgunned them in a hot and heavy idle weekend. But also (laughs) these particular cases work because they're new IP, which are still revealing their worlds and characters along the way. I can't say I'm uh, frothing at the mouth for the next Telltale Marvel joint or whatever, (laughs) <laughs> the same has been said for last year's Hitman, another game I loved. Because players got new maps piecemeal, they would replay existing ones over and over again and could discover the hidden depths IO Interactive crammed into each of these dense maps. Of course, IO also created side content, elusive targets, escalation contracts, bonus missions, etc., which facilitated recontextualizing existing maps with new things to do in them, but the point stands. Bit long-winded here, so, so I'll end on this. Uh, aren't developers who make episodic games kind of cheating? <laughs> um, which I, like, I, I won't. I won't go in that normative uh, that that normative route. Uh, but but I kind of I, I kind of get what uh, you know where, where Devin is is coming from here. Which which is that so many games have their one launch window, right? Like that's mm-hmm. their chance to make an impression. That's when people talk about them. That's when, you know, the three of us on this, on this podcast feel the most pressure to be part of a conversation. <laughs> and then three totally. weeks later with a gun in our heads, we probably couldn't tell you a thing about that game. What I did uh-huh. notice is like life is strange. And, uh, and especially Hitman last year never really died down. And that's in part because they're really good games, but but also there was kind of an element of like water cooler conversation or mm-hmm. appointment television. Uh, there was, there's an element of that to the way people were consuming these games, uh, which, which I find really interesting, but I don't think it happens both, universally. Both also had high points at exactly the right point, which was the second episode yeah. um, of content. I think, I think it was life of strange, life of strange, Episode two is the one that ends with the Kate choice on the rooftop. Is that correct? Yes, I'm pretty sure. Um, which is just like a, a deeply moving um, moment. I let me just like get deeply personal for a second. Uh, a cousin of mine committed suicide a few years ago, and I at his um, it wasn't at his funeral. It was at a, a different funeral at a funeral for the, my grandfather on that side, my like stepdad's father. Um, I got to talk to the other cousin, the younger brother of my cousin who committed suicide. And at the time I was at Giant Bomb and my mom told him like, oh yeah, my, my son Austin is working at a video game site now. He's like, oh man, like Austin plays video games. This is a kid who's like 19 or something, right? Mm-hmm. Are you for a living? Like, um, that's, that's awesome. And I was like, okay, here we go. Like, what's the conversation going to be here? Are you talking about, are you talking about FIFA? Are you talking about Madden? Are you talking about Call of Duty? I was like, so, so what sort of games do you play? 
Uh, and he says, well, my favorite game that's come out in the last year is definitely Life is Strange. And it was this moment of like, oh, fuck. Like, like that is, you, yeah? And you you like, were being yeah, dragged like, on the conversational ice at that point, too. Like, right. It's... Um, and, and, you know, what he said was like, I didn't know games could do the thing, that thing until I played that game. And it was just like this incredibly moving moment of like, I am so glad that came out for you. Yeah. Like, I'm so glad you had this thing that, tangled with the value of life so honestly um that never talked down to suicidal intentions or, or ideation um ideation uh and also that made cases for the value of life even when suffering um and so that's just like my weird aside about this game that i'll never be able to shake and i've never uh, shared elsewhere um but like the thing that that episode does, and the same does the same thing with Sapienza, is that like it made a case for the franchise, and it also, in a much more like cynical way, proved that they would deliver a second episode. Right? <laughs> yeah. um, when you look, when you think back about like the history of episodic gaming, how how long does it take between a Half Life episode <laughs> one and let's episode not, two? Let's not discuss. Don't let's mention not... the war. <laughs> 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 the great oh. broken promise of um, right, but like, life. or even going back to early Telltale stuff, those dates slipped and slipped and slipped all the time, uh, and so I think like having Sapienza and having that second episode of of Life is Strange were huge for uh, for the purposes of convincing people to keep paying attention. But do you really think it's cheating? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's more to an extent they it, they have an advantage. Uh, but it, you have to you have to be skilled to use that advantage, right? It's just a right. different it's just a different format. It's 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 right. prestige TV versus a feature film, um, or it's 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 in a in a strategy game, Rob. It's like a slower build, right? Like <laughs> other uh, every other default strategy in games is a rush. You just dump it all at, at, right away, and you're just trying to win immediately. And the thing about about uh, a rush build versus a slower build is like there's a chance that slower build is just going to get lost in the rut by the you know over overrun by the rush and somehow those two games didn't um but like i think king's quest got s completely stampeded over last year or the year before whenever that was uh so it's not like it always works that's why i don't think it's cheating i think there's enough risk involved that that it's it's a gamble yeah. I, I i do like the um Farmed table artisanal using the whole buffalo <laughs> element of uh, new Hitman because I think so. The Hitman series is always to to really work has always required a willingness to really study the machinery of a level, right? And if you just went through it to to play for the story, they're not they're not great games. They're 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 mm -mm. the combat isn't really satisfying. The the, the puzzles are, can be kind of frustrating. Um, you can solve every problem by murdering your way through a level, but then you kind of know you sucked at it, but you don't want to go back. There's just a whole bunch of things that, like, the correct way to appreciate a Hitman game was to sort of revisit these spaces again and again and sort of see how they worked and what rules governed them and then how you could exploit them and see different paths to victory. But most people aren't going to do that, right? Like. <laughs> Most of the time, when you're releasing a, a game with like a dozen levels, people are going to play the campaign, and Agent 47 is going to be sad and leave this life of murder. Or if it's an even-numbered Hitman <laughs> game, he's going to return to this life of murder. Uh, but but uh, 
what the what the episodic format allowed Hitman to do was it kind of forced everyone to stay to stick and appreciate the thing they were enjoying and stick around longer and and see how it all worked right to to appreciate the correct way to play hitman level which i think is really interesting like why did this game break through when when it's always been kind of a weird series uh for for a lot of people i think it's because for the first time like people had to hit like approach hitman on its merits do you think in that way it just sort of found the format that was always suited to it in the way that um, the kind of like the the prestige television show that just gets dumped as a Netflix show versus the one that needs to live week to week. There are shows that are better suited for both of those things. Or like talking about Mad Men, there was a moment in the history of Mad Men, season two or three, where it became very clear that it was being shot for DVD because the commercial breaks were gone. There, there were just nonsense commercial breaks tossed in like this is not well paced at all but who cares because the bulk of the people who would watch the show were the ones who would buy it on dvd around christmas time um i think that's i think it's really interesting to see a work try to find the format for itself well and here's another question because i don't know the answer to that i like i think i think it's definitely the format worked for hitman in a way that the traditional format never did and so I think that contributed to its sort of surprise success. But here's my question. Why did IO go with in this direction with Hitman? Like, was it just was it just the standard, like, oh, we're excited to explore this new format of like game creation? Or was it kind of forced on them? You know, because I, I don't think their last few games have done particularly well. Like, I'm kind of wondering with like what they could episode one and two or what they could like budget and deliver. Like right now, yeah, right. And then we'd sort of build a bridge, sort of. <laughs> we build a bridge to the future of the franchise from there. Uh, so I'm kind of wondering, like, was this approach kind of forced on them? Danielle, do you have any idea question. about this? <laughs> I think no. that's a very good question. Wow, I, that seems like a feature that somebody should write. I actually feel like this is an answered question. I just don't remember the answer. I feel like someone did <laughs> oh, talk really? to them about this this at, towards the end of last well, year. It's GDC um, week. Also, someone has to have so. talked about this. Somebody, somebody <laughs> did over like seven drinks, like last night probably. <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. They were going to cancel the whole thing, and then we said, just let us release two episodes. Come on. Yeah. God, there was some deal somewhere along the line. But it was it was definitely the, so the thing that I'm like pulling through the fog of my mind is that they understood that it was experimental and that it was risky to do it this way. Um, so I think there was at least some degree of of like I don't know how's this going to shake out. Um, uh, you know, we ran the numbers and it says that this is the way to do it, but uh, so one other thing about the episodic format is that I think it forces you to be more dramatically interesting uh in, mm. in some ways like you can't just like defer all the cool stuff until some yes. like far off mid-game point because like everyone now knows what completion rate rates are for games right they know when people fall off games and usually it's far faster than than you than mm -hmm. you'd expect and i think what what's interesting about episodic uh releases is that the payoffs have to be consistent like something cool or interesting or thought-provoking or exciting has to happen within this like two hour chunk of time. And I think to some extent, like <laughs> more games should just follow that rule regardless of format. Like, <laughs> Hey, if I'm sitting here for two hours, like 
something impressive like needs to happen. A lot right. of games well, don't. The Alan Wake thing, or the I, I didn't play Quantum Break. Oh man, Quantum Break and Alan Wake rhyme. Oh man, Break and Alan Wake. All right, here we go. Here we go. You, Alan Wake came but, up, and I didn't even get to bring it up in the deconstruction topic. So here, yeah. we, here we yeah. are. Here it My is coming in. Alan Wake. Alan Wake does this right. Like Alan Wake adapts the television show format, the episodic format, despite being just a single game that was released all at once and at the time i played along with the people on kotaku I, they were like a kotaku like game club oh, where everyone would play an episode a week and then write <laughs> god thoughts. i missed the blog I mean, era oh don't too. you don't you remember when how that was how that was a thing that the world was like <sighs> god we just talked about games and we were all friends and there was a shocking lack of nazis just yeah. way less nazis yeah. at the time yeah <laughs> that we was... knew about anyway of course, then a few of those people probably turned into Nazis. But anyway, I digress. Um, I wonder what they thought about Alan Wake. <laughs> so, but Alan Wake, I think, kind of botched the episodic format. Like, he tried to use it, but still, fundamentally, all the good stuff starts happening in the middle of the game through to the end. And, like, there's oh, well, three yeah. hours of, like, all right, let's watch this asshole in the woods some more. <laughs> But then, but then David Bowie comes on. Oh my and god! It's awesome. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Wow. Like, god there's damn. an episode of uh, Alan Wake that ends with um, uh, a space. Well, that's the end play. of the game. Is that the is that the yeah, very no, end of the game? It, no, the, the final montage is Ground Control so to Major good. Tom, and yeah. then it like plunges you into the depths of um, Cauldron Lake, and there's Alan oh, Wake right, working right, right. on his opus. But. Ugh. Wow. The, but, but, so, I, I but need to play do, this game at some it point. It did a very, like, I, it's, I don't love that game. I think that that game has serious problems. Uh, I think the game has cool things. I think it has really cool things. I've never disliked collectibles as much as in Alan Wake. They never made any sense to me. No, but, uh, in, oh, God. But this is this is why Alan Wake succeeds as deconstructive <laughs> protest art. Like, <laughs> yeah. so. Yes, Rob, <laughs> tell me more. Okay, so here's the thing. God, okay, I can't believe I'm doing this, but but here we go. We're doing it. Remember, Alan Wake was like promoted for years. Like there was a huge run up. This was a heavily uh, promoted game. There were lots of previews, and originally it was going to be it was going to be open world. It was going to be episodic. There were all these buzzwords that were coming into play. Like Remedy was uh, growing up after after Max Payne, after Max and was Payne, really gonna right. really oh, gonna yeah. push the boundaries of the form. And then the project takes forever, and it goes dark. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows what's happening. And then what you get is a linear shooter with flashlights that uh-huh. is about an author, and it's not open world anymore. It's super linear, and like there's he's a shitty path. author too. That's he's important. A, yeah, he's a, yes. he's a shitty author. And so the first like two or three chapters of the game, you're just kind of like playing this this horror story where the townspeople keep getting abducted by the Taken. Uh, and from Destiny, yeah, taken, yep, right, and these, and taken, yeah, basically, taken. and these, and these shadow figures are marauding through the woods, and you have to hit them with the light, and then kill them with a gun. Okay, so far, there so axe was there an axe? Am I misremembering? misremembering People axe? threatened you with an axe. No, I think there was an axe. Okay. I think there was an okay. axe. But I remember a dodge. There's a really cool side dodge in that game. Yeah, <laughs> you replace the like the like John Woo bullet time dodge with like ducking and moving your head to the side like a really like a really intense boxer's that, dodge that us, author, yeah. that us authors all know oh we, um, we learned it we learned it's it in part of school. training yeah um <laughs> okay so the game's kind of shit uh it's it's not that impressive and then you get to chapter four 
which is called Truth. And chapter four opens in an insane asylum where you've been committed because everyone like thinks that you're just making all this shit up and like, where'd your wife go and did you kill her? And so you've been committed to this institution and everyone's trying to convince you that basically the, the events of the last three chapters haven't happened, happened. They never happened. Um, and you've just been crazy this whole game. And who else is in the studio? No, who else is, sorry, give it away. Who else yeah. is in the insane asylum are all the components of a video game studio. There's right. an artist who's working on explicit concept art for the game. There's a pair of old rocker dude brothers who are clearly the band that Remedy would always use for their metal songs. Poets in... of the Fall? Yes, Poets oh of the Fall God. are in the Insane Asylum. It's a deep pool. Good. And then... I just remember this level. This level had a really cool like architectural design. I'd completely forgotten about that. Yeah, it's, it's a really convincing like sanitarium with like a hedge maze, and it's gorgeous, and it overlooks, the, overlooks Cauldron Lake. And then there's even like explicitly a game designer... Uh, in the level with a with a 360 sitting in his bedroom and he's got like all these like uh like flow charts and and level design uh like maps and stuff and then the person running the asylum you later learn has brought all these people together because even though he has no creative abilities himself he thinks he could be a great creator and all he yeah. needs are the people who could actually create art but they just need direction what they need <laughs> is a producer and that's what he's going to do and that's what you've stumbled into he's holding these people basically hostage they're not crazy he's just manipulated them into thinking they're crazy and then he's like taking their work and at that point at that point max like at this at that point uh, alan wake is explicitly about like its own development Right. And then, oh, by the way, Alan Wake, the character, what brought him to this like faraway town, he quit writing the Max Payne books, basically, and goes off yes, to make his master author of Max Payne. Right. Yeah. Yes. And he's too shitty an author to do it. He can't do it. And so he can't like he can't get the job done. And so the game is explicitly about like the like how it's about what artists aspire to. And then where so many artists eventually end up. And at that point, then the collectibles make sense. Because then it's like, they don't give a shit. Like, collectibles need to exist <laughs> in the shitty fucking like, corporate game they're making. So fuck it. Have a right. thermos. Enjoy it. I hope you're happy. That's what oh, this game is about. deep in the woods where there's no reason to be there. And it just costs so many resources to go out to get them. It's the worst. Oh, my God. So it anyway. It reminds uh, me of my... Uh college like creative writing class where a whole bunch of people thought it would be super brilliant if they made a little sketch like we had to write a little play basically they wrote a little sketch about you know feeling creatively blocked and procrastinating mm. writing their sketch and they thought it would be like so cute and so good and that our teacher would love it but they all failed and it was really funny. no way they they, straight up she failed. failed their asses Probably seen that move a few times. Yeah, yeah. I, I figured the first she time, had. The first time it's impressive, but by the time it's your 12th year <laughs> teaching that course. God damn it, not uh, this again. They were so... <laughs> they were, it was deer in the fucking headlights, all those kids. Was there no chance to given to them to rewrite it? I'm they sure a... they got to do something to pass the hmm. class, but it was it was really funny. It was really amusing. Sorry. 
Just, you know, you just brought me back to college there, Rob, is what happened, you know. Alan Wake is a very college grade, like, piece of art (laughs) in in some ways. Like, in the best and worst senses. Yeah. Um, And I kind of love it, but I also suspect that some of it's just a little bit, like, indefensible. Like, I love the vibe, and I basically love that it's this multi-million dollar video game that, to an extent, Mm -hmm. is, like a note smuggled out of a studio on crayon being one that basically <laughs> reads like, please help, they're abusing us. God. I love that. Uh, I am desperately looking to see if I, what I've said on this Kotaku uh, play along series right now about the, what I found so far from this episode was me basically defending the combat of this game. It's just a response to another player or another, another uh, uh, responder, and I just say, I'm completely with you. If Wake was worse at combat, or if the combat was harder, or even just clunkier, then maybe I'd be in a more nervous state, which might lead to more jumps. But as it stand, I sort of like it when the Taken come around to get shot at. Oh, right, what I'm saying is, I, this is not a scary game to me. I, it, like, the combat is too straightforward, I'm, and I enjoy it. Like, I enjoy shooting at these enemies more than I am afraid of it. Wow. Oh, okay, it was I found kind of satisfying. it. I, oh, yeah? Here we go. From May twenty, I have not read this. this Do is a it. Blind oh, this read. is this is good. May twenty, May twenty fifth, uh, two thousand ten. This is I'm I'm probably just about to watch some Avatar after. To I the quote oh, author game. Maggie Green. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Okay, here we go. I said in my last post that Alan Wake really hit its stride in episode three, Ransom. Even though all the mechanics finally came together, I had an inescapable suspicion that the core gameplay of Alan Wake might be better than the shell it was set in. Episode 4, The Truth, is a window into that game, or hopefully even into one of, even into the remaining content left in this one. Ransom was about simple inversion. It took what it was, and it flipped it over, and then it did it again at the end of the stage. The Truth decides to start with a better foundation altogether. Wake comes into the Woodlodge, Woodlodge Asylum of, psychiatrist, of a psychiatrist famous for working with artists of all kinds, including a game developer complaining about publisher demands. <laughs> Wake knows he has to escape the shrink, who is determined to twist and take control of the power of the artists he incarcerates. After a storm creates a power outage, Alan begins his breakout. What follows is the best level in the game so far. I know I said that about episode 3, here's hoping I say it about episode 5, too. <laughs> Wake begins with no weapons and no portable light source, and even when he finds them, they are limited. The open woods of the previous levels have been replaced with hallways, offices, closets, balconies, and eventually a hedge maze and a garden. The ability to dodge threats, whether incoming furniture being hurled about by poltergeists or the axe-wielding taken swinging for the author's head, is limited to say the least. Every dodge has to be timed perfectly and directed in the most strategic way to prevent the next attack. Maybe echoing the growing concern of the protagonist, the entire first half of the episode feels claustrophobic in comparison to the game up until that point. Even when the game does open up in the second half, uh, presumably I mean the level here, not the game, Remedy retains a tight grip on the game's combat and action sequences. When Alan and his, uh, and his agent Barry get separated in the woods, they fight their way to a farmhouse with a detour and a concert stage set up in the fields. The farm's owners were in a Norse-themed metal band in the 70s. <laughs> along the way, Wake spends time, again, unequipped, sprinting from safe point to safe point. Along the, uh, along the way, there are manuscript pages and coffee thermoses, the game's collectibles, in plain sight but behind threat of violence. Unlike previous levels, where these items could be hidden in a place you wouldn't look naturally, here your eye is drawn to them. Better, there is a clear risk-reward system in place. You see the obstacles which an unfriendly force might possess, and it's up to you to decide whether you want to go take the chance to go down that side path. 
This is infinitely preferable to the earlier system. Even the brief segment in the car is designed to highlight the alternate routes, and down, uh, and down each route uh, was some sort of reward. And without much effort, I managed to get each page. This is long. I'm a fucking... Someone should have edited me back then. <laughs> I'm going to keep going. I'm going to do it. I'm just, do it. This is Austin Walker original. Do it. Um, like in Ransom, episode four empowers the player during the climax uh, as a reward for playing so long with your back against the wall. Armed to the teeth, Wake and Barry find themselves on the aforementioned stage, fighting off hordes of incoming Taken with, a shotgun, with shotgun and rifle rounds, giant hand lanterns, and pyrotechnic displays of the stage. This is the first time in the level with a large open space, and this time it's to your advantage. The Taken may as well be targets in a shooting range. In my first piece about Alan Wake, fuck me. In my first piece about Alan Wake, I wrote that I'd forgotten how how well uh, I'd forgotten how well a controlled, carefully planned action sequence can work. Episode four proves that by taking away the player's inventory twice, Remedy is able to establish a pretty decent idea of how much ammo and what weapon loadout the player will have. By restricting the player's ability to move and establishing specific enemy spawn points, Remedy is able to ap- to passively prescribe what weapons should be used for what encounters. Shotguns to take out the huddled masses of weaker enemies, for instance. Uh, there is a risk in this. Sometimes an action game can feel too much like a roller coaster, leaving the player wishing that they had more control. But with a proper design, it feels like a waltz. The steps may be plotted out, but there is still a human factor at work. Thankfully, this is the case with the truth. All that said... I have to give voice to a few things I'm less happy with. Do you, Austin? Do you? Apparently. Did Remedy (laughs) really expect me not to know what had happened over those missing seven days? It was through their own manuscript system, radio shows, and Night Springs episodes that I figured out exactly what Wake had been up to in that time. And I figured it out back in episode two. This wouldn't be so bad, but instead of making me feel smart for figuring something out, it made me feel like Remedy had no faith in me as a player to keep up with what is really a pretty straightforward story. In the past, I've defended works that have had tonal shifts. When a friend said that the films of Wes Anderson, oh god, okay. Oh, when the films, yeah. when a friend said that the films of Wes Anderson shifted between comic Uh-oh. and tragic too fiercely, Uh-oh. I said that those shifts were necessary for the films to work as well as they do. I love oh my fucking god. Okay, I love albums that have varied sounds and tones. I'm exactly the sort of douchebag who likes how Morrissey and Marr created songs for the Smiths that sounded happy while lyric while lyrically being down in the dumps. But Christ, Remedy, really? I can't take the horror, what little there is, seriously when you have me fighting evil with the power of rock and roll. I definitely can't take it seriously when you have a silly-sounding tune crooning out the prophecies, crooning out prophecies and directions of an old 45 player. There is an unspoken contract between creator and audience. Certain things are desired by the audience, and as such, they'll play an active role in the procedures. What people call suspension of disbelief, or a thing like it, is just one of the jobs an audience willingly performs so long as the creator is able to put together a fiction that the audience wants in. Um, this is like the most egotistical bullshit. I, I say in parentheses, I swear I've written at length about this and will post something longer about it soon. <laughs> Somewhere, between assuming I can't keep up and, uh, and juggling bad humor with mediocre writing, Remedy broke that contract, at least with the fiction. The gameplay holds up fine. Even though I like Alan, and even though I'm, I'm curious to see if Remedy has any answer for the mysteries they still have left, I've given up on the story of this game. I don't hate it, I'm just bored. At least they feature decent tunes along the way. Um, and then I link to YouTube, and I... Okay, this is right. I, I, this was in my blog, I just reposted it to... Kotaku. That yes, okay, That's... good. Well, that was that was the that was the time and the place. That was right. That it was. was. It was like link out to your blog and then yeah. post the whole thing in a comment thread. <sighs> that was that was that was, that was prescriptive. Though. Yeah, that and was, descriptive. Oh my god, it was both and descriptive. 
seven years ago. Seven years ago, in it, seven years, you know, six years and ten months ago. So uh, I'll say this: like, pretty good breakdown of that level. Like all things yeah. considered, I'd forgotten about the rock and roll stuff. Its earnestness made it a little dour toward the end. <laughs> Come on, Remedy, this is serious. Come on, oh, they're illusions, Michael. The best yeah, part you know, is definitely the Wes Anderson. Work. The Wes Anderson yeah. reference is it's definitely the best part there. Oh, that's, that's pretty that's, choice. That's pretty it's good. Pretty choice. That's pretty For what good. it's worth, the friend who said that their problems was Wes Anderson was the tonal shifts are too rough can fuck off. Yeah. There are things to have problems that's fair. With, with the work of Wes Anderson. But that, that is fair. That friend can fuck uh, off. Fuck you, Ian. Anyway. <laughs> no one knows what that's a reference to yet. I know, they Danielle. really don't. They no really one knows. don't. They Nobody ever months. will either. There's a, there's a video series that Danielle is doing here at, at, at Waypoint yeah. in which she says that at least once, and uh, that episode probably won't be out until it's summer. So. Cool. Or next year. Or... Well, it'll, so knows? that'll be Who great, knows? because then it'll be like this blog comment that Austin just read at length. Like You can, <laughs> exactly. you can backlink to this episode <laughs> in that video and be like for more fuck off ian content exactly <laughs> exactly it's, it's branded yeah god oh good thank you for indulging 2010 austin well you know 2010 austin has a has a welcome place in our hearts here on oh, idol weekend nice. <laughs> as well and as it should be encouraging to everybody austin. like someone yeah, gave talk. that person a website okay well, there was a different person there was a bunch of other people <laughs> between 2010 austin and this austin 2010 Austin was watching Avatar and about to go to grad school where he yeah. would learn to be a little less of an asshole. So, I mean, 2010 Danielle wrote uh, some some real amazing reviews of, of terrible, terrible, terrible lesbian films <laughs> and, and was probably a little too nice to them. Uh, so, you know, we've, we're, all, we've, all, we've all done it. Yeah, I mean, not exactly that, but you know what I mean. We've all been a young writer once, I think. And, Back uh, when my, my dodges were not as good as they are today. I was just a, a young <laughs> a author. Journeyman you're author. You're yes. just, you were young, and now your dodge is strong. And now we have one more letter. Uh, Chris... I think we should just uh, skip that letter. All right. It's you a, know it's what? It's a long episode. Apologies. You know what? Since we had bonus Austin content, we'll we'll move right into our weekend project. Right. Sorry. Sorry. The third letter was actually written by me seven years ago. <laughs> Oh, God. One day I'll be on a weekend podcast, and here's the thing. Um, okay, so, Austin, normally I, I would let the guest, the special guest, the guest of honor, uh, start us off with weekend projects, but I know you've got something saved up, something you want to end on, and, uh, yeah. you know, since we're, in, we're we're feeling indulgent today, we'll we'll let you do that. So, Rob, Rob, what, what have you been super into lately? What's your What's your thing? What's setting your world on fire? Uh, so I've actually, so I'm basically, I want to talk about two movies that I've, I've finally gotten around to seeing of late, yes. uh, both Denzel Washington movies, uh, as, okay. as a matter Ooh. of fact. So, uh, I was on, a, I was on a long flight and I decided it was finally time to get over myself and, uh, watch the new Magnificent Seven. Okay. Um, okay. Which I, I watched a, an, an, like the guy next to me watched that movie on the plane this week. <laughs> I had. Are you wait? Are you sure you weren't saying next? He to was me on Twitch. My, uh, yeah. my my seat companion watched it over my shoulder uh, as well, huh. and at one point is like, "That looks good. What is that?" And I was like, "Yeah, oh, it looked good." Uh, and That's then nice. I also watched a flight uh, in in the space mm. of a week. Okay, okay. And I think 
So, so, so two things. The New Magnificent Seven is is a better movie than than I thought it was going to be. Um, it's it's a really good. It's a, it's a really solid action movie. Uh, there's there's an there's a craft to shooting a proper like Alamo style last stand battle scene, uh, mm. and it absolutely nails it. Right, like you know, it it establishes this the the geography of this small town and its outlying area really really well, and. Then in in the finale, like you are called upon to remember all of that because it's it's pretty important for keeping track of where all the characters are. Uh, but it was it was a surprisingly uh, fun movie, and uh, I was it is it is still weird, but getting less so uh, that Chris Pratt has become a major action star and is kind of the co-star after. Denzel Washington, Denzel fucking Washington, uh, is being co-starred by Chris Pratt. Um, That's wild. <laughs> Andy Dwyer is yeah. uh, the, the the badass, uh, you know, vainglorious cowboy um, of the old west. But it's it, it's a it's a fun movie. Um, I swear to God, the character of the badass, uh, enlightened ex-Confederate soldier needs to needs to go away. Oof. Yeah, um, not great. Also, like, could we just please stop pretending that, like, you know, some anybody who fought for like Nathan Bedford Forrest or Robert E. Lee was somehow intrinsically like the greatest warrior since I don't know Zatoichi <laughs> or something? But like, it's 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 a little it's a little heavy handed. But uh, the blind Confederate uh, that's <laughs> coming soon, right? Yeah. Almost, oh. almost certainly. Uh, although I think that's a Chappelle skit. Um, yeah. uh-huh. It is. It so is. Um, <laughs> That's literally true. <laughs> but the movie that really I want to talk about is is Flight, because um, basically these these are two movies that are that are very much like kind of Denzel Washington vehicles, but also it's like he's not working with the absolute best material, sure. and sure. it's kind of when you're seeing a good actor in kind of a by the numbers film that you can kind of start to pick apart like what it is they're doing that makes them great or makes them a star. And I think with Flight, it started to dawn on me that, like, something I really enjoy about Washington's performances is that in some ways he seems like a throwback to, like, mm-hmm. 70s cinema. Sure. In that he is a... A lot, of, a lot of actors will stop and wait for the other characters to, like, say their lines in a scene and before moving on. And I think that's... Partly just the style now, but also probably makes it easier to distribute internationally uh, when you're when you're sure. doing translation work. Totally, yeah. Washington does this thing that used to be really common in films, but is less so now. He starts reacting and flubbing his lines and and, and sort of trying to talk and break into what another yeah. character is saying all the time. That makes all his performances feel more convincing than they have any right to be. Like. Sure. <laughs> Flight. Flight is a deeply flawed movie in that it purports to be a story about alcoholism that can't get over the fact that Denzel Washington is just so damn awesome that <laughs> alcoholism, and better yet, oh, functional boy. alcoholism with the aid of cocaine, is Ooh. cool. Like, this character, what a badass. Like, yeah, his life's a smoking ruin, but like... Screw it. Let's watch him put on these aviators and walk out in slow motion to this to this uh, t- to this um, uh, NTSB hearing where he's gonna totally lie. Right. Uh, but the thing that the, but the thing that struck me was like 
as he's starting to be accused and uh the 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 uh the the rope is starting to tighten the, the lies he's sort of woven around himself are starting to close in around him and he starts like falling back on indignation and outrage that people are going to question him and hmm. he's so caught flat-footed that like that his status is is being questioned but the way he does all this is like other characters will be having these conversations and he's just reacting organically to to all of them. Uh, he'll start mumbling. He'll start speaking before anyone finishes. And it ends up making like his characters... And he, he does it in a lot of fil- films, but I think it's one reason like that he's become the king of like the everyman, working man hero uh, movies. Mm-hmm. Like much more... Like Wahlberg is trying to do it. The public movies. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but he's he's he, like he was in a movie called John Q. He was in a it, movie called John Q. Yes, that's right. That the hospital one. movie, right? The yes. the uh, the healthcare movie. Yes. Yep. Um, an important message about healthcare. Uh, that's also about hostage taking. <laughs> it's also a fucking yep. thriller. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. It was like, but it was just it was cool watching this movie because it was like, it's not a great film, but it has one hell of a, of uh, a plane crash in it. Uh, worth watching just for that. But it's mostly just like seeing this really great actor who we've had years to sort of watch his work and, and get familiar with it, like really watching him engage with like B material and mm-hmm. how to sell that and how to make that, uh, how to create pathos from stuff that is, that is pretty shop worn uh, at this point. And so much of it is just about him kind of breaking a lot of the rules and just reacting organically in a way that a lot of other actors just don't anymore. And maybe it's cause like, Nobody can tell him what to do anymore. So he just plays a scene the way he wants in a way that like right. Chris Pratt is not going to be allowed to play a nope. scene. But I don't know. It's 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 a cool affect that he brings to brings to these films and it was cool seeing it in the service of like this B level material. Oh, awesome. Denzel. He always has that intensity. Oh, I'm going to check out Magnificent Seven. I, the the fight scene that I saw looked good. So yeah. with your recommendation, I'll definitely check it out. That sounds super fun. Um, my endorsement is definitely, definitely get out. Everybody should see it, see it twice. I don't know. It's it's just, uh, I'm, I'm not going to go on about it. I'll, I'll talk about the wire a little bit too. Uh, but God damn, uh, I went in with high expectations. You know, I literally, we had just talked, uh, to Evan, uh, at, at the, the point, the day I saw this movie last weekend, we had just talked to Evan. He had said, Oh my God, go see it. Uh, I had seen you tweeting about it, Austin, saying like, oh my God, go see it. So I had high expectations already. And I went in and they were even blown out of the water. I was, I've always been a, a massive fan of Key and Peele. I know that sensibility of like combining a little horror with a little slapstick, with a little, you mm-hmm. know, with a little bit of that sketch comedy uh, timing and that sort of like cadence that that movie has in some points. And it just... Oh God, it's it's really good. Oh, that's all I'll say. It's just really good. People should see it. It's excellent. It's a really really brilliant horror movie. And like I said earlier, I am uh, I am watching The Wire again. This is my first time through the first season of The Wire. Uh, mm, my I said this already. Season. Yeah, I mean it's, it's fantastic. It's just weird going back because uh, yeah. I I saw the fifth season. I actually watched the fourth season and fifth season. 
because uh, I had to do some uh, reviewing and interviews and so on and so forth. And it was a show I hadn't watched. And so I had to like rapidly oh, get up to speed I with see. it. Yeah. At the time, you know, in right. whatever it was, 2007, uh, that the fifth season aired. I don't remember the exact year, but around then, I think. That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Like I got a screener and it was very exciting for 2008 or 2007, Danielle, to get a screener from HBO. Holy shit. That was, that was mm-hmm. very exciting. I usually was reviewing like lesbian movies uh, made with, three dollars you know and like a packet of gum uh so this was very exciting for me and i was like oh shit i gotta catch up on this and then you know watched at least the previous season and then uh reviewed the first two episodes of the fifth season uh mainly because i was at a queer website and there were a couple of queer uh, women of color characters and it was like very exciting and blah 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 yada 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 sorry i'm going on and on about the backstory uh but this is my first time through the first season and it is obviously I think it holds up really well. I think it's an incredibly well-written and nuanced sort of portrait of cops and what they do and the really not okay things that they do and the Mm -hmm. sometimes heroic things that they do. And also of, you know, incredibly disadvantaged people and gang members who are selling drugs and all kinds of people from all kinds of walks of life. Uh, in a incredibly, incredibly difficult time in West Baltimore, which is uh, still uh, a place that, it, you know, it's, there's still a lot of problems uh, there, certainly economically speaking. Uh, it is a little dated. Like, I think it holds up well, but it, it sure is a little dated. Like, you know, there, if you, if there you, are pagers. There are pagers and also even at the time. So this is 2002. Oh, right. Like I even had a cell phone in 2002 and I was not Ms technologically savvy by any means i guess the pagers are even dated in the wire they are characters believe that they are dated yeah Yeah, they're even like why are they using pagers and it's like you know because it's a little easier to get around they have a whole system of of sort of how to you know fool the cops for a while basically uh the folks selling drugs and uh everybody associated with them uh but just in terms of style it's a little bit dated like it is a little bit uh a little bit heightened it's a little bit you can kind of see, like, all right, this, you're just barely out of the 90s at this point. I can, I can already kind of <laughs> see, like, prestige TV even has has gone leaps and bounds beyond this in terms of, you know, going for a very naturalistic look and feel and that sort of thing. Uh, still incredibly well-crafted, incredibly well-written. The acting is fucking awesome. It's it's honestly hard to... um find any faults with those aspects of sort of the craft of the show it's just more stylistic stuff that has just changed in the last few yeah, years I, so i would take issue with saying that's dated though like i think it may not it just, be it as, just feels it's like it's invoke. from the time yeah yeah, yeah. So like, here's, yeah here's go ahead well so the thing i would just say though is like i actually kind of miss when shows are maybe a little more comfortable being a little more heightened uh, sure. at times like i think the reason like the reason season one is kind of my favorite and like how many iconic wire moments are contained within season one how much oh, how many yeah. of them owe to the fact that like the wire season one isn't afraid of going to like operic le- operatic levels yeah. of emotion mm-hmm. uh in a way that a lot of prestige tv is not right like a lot of the the, the knock on a lot of prestige tv is like it's about sad man feels uh, which is <laughs> about like like sure. people not expressing emotion and not showing it and not saying the thing that needs to be said. End of the Wire season one, a lot's been said, <laughs> a lot's oh, been done. Yeah, uh, we've all said things, we've all done things, we all regret things. But I think that's why it ends up working so well for me is that 
every character has this emotional arc uh, that's complicated and heartbreaking and often usually leads to some sort of beautiful payoff uh, in, in a scene. It's a little bit Shakespearean, like... In, oh, a, in a oh, way, yes. like where Wallace really at? actually Come is. Come on, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, this is the thing, though. Yeah, I don't know. I think I'm a season three guy. I, I, I think okay. I'm season three, season. F- um, I don't know. I have to think about. Hey, this. season four has some this. great stuff. Like I, I know, no season- need to, you know. Yes, uh, a thing I'll say that's interesting about it. Are, are you watching in HD or are you watching like older DVDs? Yeah, I'm watching uh, on Amazon, so it's in HD. That's interesting. So when that show first came out, it was in four by three, um, and sixteen by nine had started just before and had really started taking off in the middle of the run. And David Simon at the time was like adamant not to leave and go to HD because, oh. and his quote was, four by three is is what television is what television looks like, huh. and not like what movies look like, and that means it's what real life looks like. Wow. That like people watch four by three television sets they don't watch 16 by 9 hd tvs they don't watch movies um day to day they watch their news on their little four by three television sets and that's changed now obviously right (laughs) um so i'm curious what it would be like to watch those old four by three dvds now talk about dated to feel like hey this is the thing that at the time was meant specifically to emulate the feeling of a news show versus prestige drama or or a film um but now that line has been blurred substantially yeah so so yeah that's interesting that's super fascinating yeah before Um, we move on from this yeah everyone's favorite season one scene or moment what's 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 the moment that like affected you the most that sticks with you the most how far in are you danielle well uh kima is still in a coma Okay. So I'm probably like episode like... Uh, You're almost I done, I think. I'm almost yeah, done. I'm towards the end. the end. I'm towards the end. She's still in a coma, but she's, you know, it looks like maybe she'll survive, but they don't really know. It's one of those. Hmm. Hmm. Has Wallace been sent to the country yet? Yes. Wallace is out there. Has he come back yep. from the country? No, he's still out there. Okay. Um, oh, this is tough. It's, this is really fucking hard. Uh, I don't know. I rewatched this season last year or the year before, actually, now that I think about it, when they did the HD versions. And a lot of things st- stood out. Um, and a lot of them are, like, the obvious big ones. The the chicken nugget scene, the, like, all the couch <laughs> scenes are fantastic. The chicken nugget um, scene is the... pretty amazing, yeah. Um, Oh man, this is impossible. So well, I'll, I'll go first. I'll, I'll, or, yeah, Danielle, if you're right. I'll do a couple because you know I like to cheat okay. and do a couple. Um, there's actually a moment that I really love, uh, and and this is maybe the part that's the most dated about the show in a really wonderful way. But mm-hmm. a lot of the moments uh, with Kima and her girlfriend were like fucking mm. groundbreaking at the time. Like there were there were almost no lesbians on TV, like ever, ever, ever. And if there were, they were very white. So it was like, in you know, even watching this later on, basically, I mm-hmm. I am like, wow, that's. It's fucking awesome. But there's a moment where she's explaining why she wanted to be a cop. She's at like a a lesbian bar and she's with like another couple and she's there with her girlfriend. Her girlfriend is like not super into the fact that she's a cop. She's a journalist. She does other things in her life and um, has other political sensibilities, certainly. And uh, she just has this incredible moment where she she's like describing like 
basically wanting to have the power to like help somebody in in a really like kind of awesome way and her girlfriend who doesn't again is not like really on board with this at all but loves her so much and they just she just looks at her and and just kisses her and it's like i just love you i just love who you are without saying any of this like mm-hmm. I, I don't even care that this isn't the way i see the world like i just fucking love you so much and that's for me like that is just incredible and awesome and I also really love the moment uh, when Omar and uh, Stringer Bell have like a parlay and they're walking around like this right. fountain and it's like mm. in, in a public space and yeah. nobody else knows why there's so much drama here. They're just walking around. And Omar is probably my favorite character in the whole show. Oh, like, sure. I, I fucking love Omar. Um, and and he's just so smart and so natural and he just figures everything out. Like in the course of this scene, you can kind of see him like working out the options saying what he can say uh, because he's on a wire at that moment he knows he is and he's trying to help out you know uh, mcnulty and kima in in this this whole plot against uh avon barksdale's gang and he just every little every little affectation that he has feels like it's him working through a problem like like a math problem or something like he, he's mm-hmm. just figuring out the strategy of what this really is what the hit on him really means if he can actually have this peace in the gang and it's i don't know it's just it's moments like those where it's just not much even needed to be said but it's there and it's this person who is who is the smartest fucking person on this show who is just figuring out what's going on and making his maneuvers and not making a mm-hmm. big production of it if that makes sense uh so this i i don't think it's the same episode but it is it is uh similarly maybe not uh one of the scenes that i think jumps to mind when you think about the wire there it's in the episode game day which is the oh, east first west yes. basketball oh, game yes. yeah, it's the yeah. first time prop joe shows up. i just saw that one last um, night yeah yeah it's so good and it concludes i mean the episode concludes with omar attacking avon yeah. but before that happens there's this cat and mouse chase sequence yeah. where the cops i de- finally figure out what what yes. avon looks like yes. based on an old uh an old boxing photo yeah. um and then try to corner him in and it ends with him driving past them and waving in this like yep. very like late nineties like puff daddy <laughs> like East Coast way that is so good. And then immediately gets gets cornered by Omar yep. who who actually manages to shoot him. And that whole scene is also fantastic. But those two scenes in proximity to each other, um, of like it's it's this great illustration of even when you got them because you don't you don't walk here these are not your streets yeah. they get confused uh, and the same thing ends up happening of course in the in the sequence where Kima gets hurt yeah. badly um because it's because these are not the police for all of the fact that they're supposed to be protecting and serving don't know these neighborhoods yeah. they're not from these neighborhoods uh, and so there will always they will always be a step behind. But Omar knows them so well that he can get the jump on who is the the guy who's the most protected person in all of West Side. Yes. So, oh, yeah. um, I think that's that's my secret favorite scene in that in oh, that first season. So good. So I I love Game Day and the fact that like even the cops end up like kind of joining the truce and just watching yeah, the yeah, a to bit. an extent. Also, yeah. Prop oh. Joe is great. Also, yes. shout out to Prop Joe. Rest in peace. I forget <laughs> the actor's name, but he passed. Oh no. Um, yeah. My favorite scene though is either in the episode where Kima gets shot or or immediately thereafter. Um, basically, it's in the hospital when 
McNulty is completely gutted oh. and thinks he's done this. Yep. Like, thinks he has completely, like, he's gotten one of his partners, uh, like, possibly mm-hmm. killed. Um, he's the person who never let any of this drop. Like, he's set a lot of this in motion, and now someone he really loves and respects is, at, like, at mm-hmm. death's door. Um, and he feels like he did this. Like, this is all in his shoulders. And the character who comes to his aid in this moment is, it is one of the few times, like, that a show has legitimately shocked me. Yeah. Uh, his captain, right? Uh, the the head of his homicide division, has been played as such a convincing, vindictive asshole. Yeah, uh, just a complete son of a bitch who's been <laughs> antagonizing uh, the team since the first episode. He comes over there, and he, he and McNulty sort of like reveals what he's going through. And he immediately gives him, like, the pep talk to end all pep talks. You know, basically Mm -hmm. he's, you know, like, you did not do this. Like, you know, I have an issue with the way you do your job. You you, you stir shit up. You're a pain in the ass. You're one of the worst cops in my division. But you didn't do this. Um, This is not on you. And gives this speech. And it is so raw and emotional. And it is so tribal. Uh, it is so that you know, for all that we hate each other, we, we are, are still police. in this together. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is, it is this, and it's a, it's a theme the show returns to again and again. But it is the most like visceral demonstration of that like good police identity that all these characters cling mm-hmm. to. That these these two people who who hate each other maybe more than anybody in the show <laughs> have this moment this momentary truce because the captain just can't stand seeing an officer blame himself for, you know, what is, what is it? He says toward toward the end. He says, uh, shit went bad. She took two for the company. Yeah. You know, right. yeah. It's just That's this, what he says. it's this unbelievable closing line that yeah. just like says, well, he's, says he's everything. Giving it to McNulty as a mantra, right? Yep. Like, here, just this is the here's the story for you. In the same way that like the police have to train themselves before an internal investigation or something, but yep. whenever they you know, you discharge her, here's the here's the company line, and like he it's he's arming McNulty with the with the weapon to process what happened, um, for better and worse in some ways. Yeah, you know. Yeah, so, and and I and on a lesser show. That would have been a moment that triggered a complete change to their relationship and yeah, like some sort right. of like stereotypical character growth. These two adversaries come to respect each other. <laughs> nah. And it doesn't happen. Nope. Like they like <laughs> they go all. back to hating each other, you know, by the end of the series, uh, they are still that vendetta is still active. But that moment also never completely goes away. You know what I mean? It becomes part of mm-hmm. the fabric of the relationship of these two characters and their identities. Um, and so I just I, I just love that so much because it is such a surprising and and wonderfully acted moment, and yet it doesn't lead into any of those terrible tropes where the villain redeems himself and completely yeah. has a change of heart. Like their problems don't go away from one speech, one conversation, but there is something they both share that is more important than their feud, and I just I love it. Yeah, it's, it's really good. It's so good. And right before I, I'm going to turn to you, Austin, I, I will say one last thing about watching The Wire season one in 2017 uh, is that just for myself personally, watching a lot of the show sort of in the 
in the climate that we live in and with Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. and with police brutality being uh, something we really talk about, I think, a little bit more in the, the wider sort of social circles, at least that I am privy to, sure is different. It, it sure yep. feels a little different to be watching this and being like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> this is this is something we, t we talk about a lot more now and maybe something that went uh, somewhat less noticed by, by white audiences previously, potentially. I don't think it was yeah. supposed to. Like, I don't think I it was think supposed that... to either. It just it sure shows, it, it sure feels different in this era watching it now. I, I mean, I think that there's something there, though, implicitly in the willingness to depict the lives of um, black drug dealers yeah. as complete lives and not as mm -hmm. uh, one-off characters in a procedural. Absolutely. Like, you know, there you can draw a line between this and um, Homicide, uh, uh, the television show that came before it and is also based on the work of, of David Simon. Um, but, but even in Homicide, it's not... Excuse me. You don't have regular characters. You don't have. There aren't regular cast members who are criminals right. who you empathize with, and I, I think that depiction alone is a step towards trying to to humanize, um, you know, black folks in America, which yeah. is an absurd thing to say that that needs to be done, um, but it did. Uh, and I and you know I, I also I think like the Presbalewski arc. Uh, uh, and some yeah. other yeah. and also herc like there's enough shitty Fucking cops yeah. where like and and specifically the attention paid to the bureaucracy to the numbers to the way that it intersects with politics yeah. and and economics is attempting to bring an audience to these issues um i don't know that it succeeds all the time i love the wire uh and it's it's been one of those things of like seeing david simon become increasingly centrist yeah or or not moving to the left as i feel like he, the current moment requires has been a little frustrating yeah. but it won't really diminish my love of that show i think at the end of the day so yeah, yeah absolutely great great show i i think so and i think it was ahead of its time in a lot of regards now yep. speaking of of ahead of its time in a lot of regards all right, I 2010, Austin. I wrote. <laughs> exactly. All right, I had my time. 2010 Austin, <laughs> I want to welcome you back. Episode. No, okay. Uh, so I do have a, what, is, what do you call, what's the segment called? Weekend Weekend projects. projects? Yeah. Weekend projects. Yeah, we got a project. Um, all right, so Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Okay, I'm talking with you. I do love that game. You should check out the, the piece I wrote about it on Waypoint. Uh, I also did a read of it for Waypoint Radio, so check those out. But the thing I, I want to my, here's my weekend project is is actually there is a, a bit of a time travel element here, oh. which is two years ago, I guess two Mays ago, I uh, I went on to the Giant Beast cast, and uh, it was the first time that audience had really gotten to know me. I'd done a uh, a best of like a top ten list once for Giant Bomb, yeah. but unless you followed weird games critics on the internet you probably didn't know who i was and then i did a podcast and at the end Vinny did this really clever thing which is he announced that i'd been hired at giant <laughs> bomb um which is a really really smart trick because it meant that people listened to me for an hour or two and was like oh this guy's all right and at the end Vinny was like haha tricked you we hired this guy uh and i remember that episode uh, yeah it's a pretty good episode. It's like the second episode of the Beastcast, yeah. or the first. Um, I think it's the first full one. I'm going to pull a similar trick here. 
What? Rob Zachney, this weekend I need you to get your things in order. Because on Monday, uh, you, we really just really need you at Waypoint. We really need you. Badly. <laughs> I've, I've heard tell. I've heard tell of a couple late uh, nights and days where people couple, work past couple five. Couple of them, you know. We, we really pour a lot into what we do here. Um, and frankly, we think that you would be uh, an incredible addition. Uh, you're someone who I've respected for a long time. Um, I, you know, I don't even know how we got to talking on the internet years ago, Rob. Like, I think I was listening to Three Moves Ahead, probably. I was a fan of the show. And bit by bit, you know, you're writing and I, and I respected your writing. You started to respect my writing. And, and I have always felt that you were someone who um, had an incredible amount of insight into the world of games. Uh, and so I'm thrilled to be getting to, to work with you going forward um, as a senior editor at Waypoint. Yay! Well, thanks, guys. See, that's my contribution. Austin said a whole, a whole <laughs> I mean, lot of, like, really your contribution, heartfelt Your contribution was, was five months ago when we went, should we, hi- should we, should we hire Rob? And I was Is like, that? yes, yes, and yes. Yeah. And here are the top ten reasons why we should hire Rob. I had, I had a whole litany of reasons. A whole list. Yeah. Well, we needed to have a list because we had to go to, to my boss yeah. and say, like, hey, we really need someone who is who has a lot of experience, who understands games that, uh, you know, that one a lot of people do, but that we might not, right? Like Rob, your your understanding of esports and strategy games and and kind of like those niches of the 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 space are really important uh, and are not. There are not a lot of people who can talk to me about esports in a way that makes me excited about it. Yes. Um, and you won't just be covering esports for us. Obviously, we're going to work out what that what your beats look like, and and I'm really excited to work with you in this capacity. So thank you again for for joining us, and thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, Rob, I'm so excited. We we do this podcast, and we get to talk about each other's lives, and we've had such an arc in this last year. <laughs> and I won't I won't reveal anything other than <laughs> there sure has been an arc. In the last year, and I'm I'm just really happy that we're gonna we're gonna move to the next phase of our beautiful podcasting relationship. Yeah, it has been a um, <laughs> it, it it has been interesting being on the show uh, because there there have been a lot of nights where I think we've both been like completely burned out. Oh yeah, um, and I and I think actually that's that's one of the things that sort of created this opportunity. Is I think independently we all had various like bitch sessions around the uh so the oh, sewing yeah. circle uh as it <laughs> yes, were about like we sure did. frustrations of day-to-day editorial operations uh <laughs> you know work-life balance stuff and and i i really felt like um we were going through some of the same stuff and shared a lot of the same uh values and and ideals uh which was really exciting and i was actually super jealous that um you know sort of a, there's a tendency especially when you're freelancing to sort of always feel like you zigged when you should have zagged you didn't like join this and i felt that it happened again because i took another job uh i took a job austin and i actually only the only time we've ever met in person true uh we were both discussing uh this was a year ago yeah this was this was pax last year yeah. and so yeah. it's been a year we ran to each other at frozen synapse too uh That's and true. and went out for drinks and we were both mulling over these job offers um, and you know, yours ended ended up well. Um, mine ended up well. It turned out all right in the end, but like 2016, mm-hmm. there was an arc. Uh, there yeah. <laughs> some some things were done. Uh, some things were yeah. said. 
uh, and and I had to get through it, and it resolved itself before this before this uh, opportunity came together. But like, you know, there was definitely a part of me in, in twenty in twenty sixteen where I'm watching like, you know, after after uh, you know Danielle had been hired, there's definitely this part of me that was like, you know, you're sort of peering over the fence into yeah. like, you know, uh, Eagleton, I guess <laughs> to <laughs> to my uh, Pawnee. Uh, and, and that's kind nice. of how it felt. It was like, son of a bitch. It's like, it's happening again. Like the cool thing is getting off the ground and I'm trapped in like contractor hell. Uh, right. and it is so good to be sort of joining this team, uh, you know, fairly early. Um, yeah. it's, it, it's so exciting and I'm, I'm so excited to, to work with you guys, uh, especially after an episode like this where, uh, I suspect we will not suffer for things to talk about. No, nope. I don't think we have any problem. <laughs> uh, you'll be staying in LA for the very near future, at least, and then hopefully joining us in the Brooklyn uh, yeah. office sometime later this year. You'll so, get to have our, our cool question. coffee and uh, enjoy our nice, uh, our beautiful, actually, our beautiful deck that I like to jump rope on. It's it's going to be really fun. And I hear there's time. tons of spacious offices. Um, oh, boy. You know, the, well, uh, so there's a corner suite, I think, reserved. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we have a studio being finished currently, and that'll help. Legitimately, there's a chair-stealing problem right now. I have had to there go is. and steal a chair, like, the last three days <laughs> There are too many. We, Vice is a company that was like 300 people two years ago and it's 1,200 people today. Yeah. Uh, and so they need more chairs. More chairs. More There's desk. a second office. Some other editorial teams are going to move to that office and that's going to free up some space. Is yeah. it like opening in the same area? Just like across the street? or In Brooklyn. No, it's, but not... it's in Brooklyn. It's yeah. kind of not near us at all. But the, the teams that I believe are moving there all just live closer to there. So it's not that big of a deal for okay. them. Well, that's, okay. that's not so bad. Yeah. yeah. It's not us though. We're not. Well, that'll, not be, that'll be my there. problem in uh, probably a few months. Yeah, but I for now, I wait I, to have you uh, on board. Yeah, yeah I'm. I'm so incredibly excited uh and and so so ready to get back to like traditional games editorial uh after. me too yeah. yeah i'm excited to have you we miss you we i miss your writing so badly yes. that is like the number one thing people ask me whenever i bring up idle weekend they're like where's where's rob what's he doing where's he writing yeah. i haven't seen him write in a little while i haven't seen his 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 features and i've always been like rob's getting drunk worry. on the floor of his apartment in a laugh <laughs> Oh, that's my favorite. Ep- that's my favorite scene from the first ep- from yeah. the first uh, year of the wire. <laughs> Rob drunk putting together IKEA furniture. Right, it's Rob's wire doing his best McNulty. Yeah, uh, impression. I, I honestly, the 2016, I was more bunked down by the train tracks. Uh, oh, that was I some, see. some real good. So, so we got to get you. Listen, we got to get you to your your true self, which I believe in my heart of hearts is Lester Freeman. Yep. Like yep. you've yep. given me. The job will not save you talk so many times, Rob. <laughs> so yep. it is, uh, it is, it is again, a joy to have you on board. Uh, I'm not going to belabor this much longer though, because we'll have so many other opportunities to talk in the future. Thank you both again for having me on. Of course, Austin, you, you're the boss. So yeah. I'm kidding that that's weird. No. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. It's a little weird, but it's also like, ah, cool. you know, it's yeah. tough. It's a weird thing. It's life. Work is strange. Life is strange. <laughs> life is strange. I think we can all agree that life is strange. And I we think endorse that, that game. <laughs> yeah, you really do need to, even though I've spoiled it for you like 15 times already at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think with that, 
that beautiful point and this beautiful two hours you've spent with us, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And we really do appreciate that you've spent the last couple of hours with us. And we also really appreciate it if you would uh, go ahead and write a little review on iTunes and tell your friends, tell your work, you know, your co-working buddies, your your co-working space buddies, whoever they are, <laughs> tell your pets, tell your friends, tell your mom, tell your dad, whoever it is that you think might enjoy Idle Weekend and enjoy our brand of lunacy, please do tell them because it helps us out so much and it means the universe to us. So for Rob Zachney and special guest Austin Walker, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. <laughs>